Hello, and welcome to the podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. And typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And he was here a minute ago, but you know, he just had, he, he was, he had, he, he was in a hurry. He was trying to get out the door. He had to get out to get the newest issue of Orithia Blue. So hopefully he gets that. You know, I know it's picking up from the last issue. There's going to be some good stuff happening in that comic. We are fans of comic books around here, specifically that one. Hopefully while he was out, he did wear a mask. Okay. In the meantime, allow me to welcome you to a very special episode of the fear of God. Not only is this the very first meeting of the fear of God book club, this week, we are going to be featuring Lovecraft Country by author Matt Ruff and soon to be a series on HBO this August. But not only are we talking about the book Lovecraft Country, we are also talking to the author himself. That's right. Uh, Matt Ruff, author of Lovecraft Country, as well as other works like Bad Monkeys, The Mirage, and most recently 88 Names, is going to be featured on this very episode. But I am getting ahead of myself. Because here at The Fear of God, we explore, we don't explain. Except for now, when I explain that you can listen to The Fear of God at your nearest podcast platform, now including Pandora. I got that email about two hours ago. You can watch The Fear of God on YouTube. And you can browse The Fear of God on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com, where you'll find episode archives and merch, including cell phone cases, t-shirts, campaign buttons, face masks. Thank you, David Pooler. We're going to throw your face in the face mask up all over the place, whether that ain't right on your face. It's awesome. Magnets, pillows, read! Riri! Welcome. Oh, <laughs> hello, Rafiki. That is unexpected. Look at that. Room. Did your room barf Disney? Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. From the day we arrive on the planet, blink, <laughs> step into just, the sun. Just do it. Get down here. <laughs> Keep going. It's more could, to see. I could do it. I could, I it can never so be seen. More to do than can ever be done. I'm not going to go for the high note. <laughs> <laughs> that was an unexpected uh, way to have you on, but yeah. I'm glad you're here. Um, you my, are, you are friend, not then... you're not in your typical uh, geography, it looks like. Right, I'm did not. You, did you, with, with the Disney parks closed, did you 
you know, kind of secret your way into the park just after hours, not after hours. Cause there are no hours right now. That like, would, are you there great. on site? No, no, but I'm in the next best place. I am, mm. uh, in the home of my beloved wife's beloved parents and mm. they have a room as you can see, completely dedicated to all things Disney and Disneyland uh, with particular attention to Goofy. You're going to see, you know, Goofy's Goofy's right here uh, and in a little like phone cradle is also behind shoulder. me. Yeah. yeah. And, and with a lamp. And uh, and so. Uh, so, yeah, you're just you're just surrounded by it. what you don't see and would be far too cumbersome for me to sort of like turn the camera around is I'm actually I'm also sitting at a desk that has, uh, you know, very much more paraphernalia, including lots of little like toys and and uh, Disney display and so it's it's really it's really quite delightful this is uh, I this, like it that yeah. seems like a happy place uh, I, I have a feeling that I'm now going to have to justify driving up here every single time that we record a session because uh, okay. yeah now I'm spoiled so yeah, yeah, yeah. there's that well but, welcome to Disney room <laughs> um, in the interest Riri of getting to our time with Matt Ruff which I have you Woo. know, a little little birdie told me that's a good time coming. Yeah, that's um, true. Shall we go ahead and uh, read the uh, business section today? Uh, oh, wait. Hang on. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Let's see. Business section. Ooh, la, la. What do we got here? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, again, it's the it's, I just default to the Palpatine hands. You oh. know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yes, speaking of business time, these are your calls to action for this episode. We still want your email so you can still get your stickers. We already sent out a big crop of those. It's awesome. Been seeing you guys post those to the socials. Um, emails for stickers. We want your email address. We are not above bartering for it. So <laughs> go to the website where it says subscribe, put your email there and hit subscribe. Um, and we'll be checking that and you will be getting, uh, someone asked after this began, like, well, how do you know where to send it? So, uh, you subscribe. We see that I email you, you give me your address. I send you a sticker. Easy. You get a Done. Sticker. You get to throw it. Thank, thanks for all of you who've been throwing them on your computers and on your, you know, other, some other places people have been throwing their stickers. All that. I can't really tell from the picture. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, emails for stickers read. So if they, if they get their sticker and they take a picture of it on whatever they've put it on sure. and they post it to their socials, tagging us, what might happen in that scenario? Some, something really amazing because as you have been, uh, hopefully paying attention to listeners is that in just a few moments, you are going to be privy to a conversation that Nathan and I had with the author of Lovecraft Country, the novel, Matt Ruff. Uh, it's a really fun conversation. We think you're going to have a really good time. But wait, there's more. If you do what Nathan suggested and take a picture of the Fear of God sticker and uh, post that to your social media feed and tag us in it, uh, it doesn't have to just be the sticker. You could right. uh, share the show. You could share an episode. You could just mention the show. You just share it to your public socials and tag us in it, and then you will automatically be entered into an opportunity to win an autographed copy of Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff himself. Um, so there's not much time left to do that. If you're listening to this, you only have a week left to do that. We will be announcing who won that autographed copy of Lovecraft Country next week. So share whatever you want to about the show to the social media feeds. And yeah, 
automatically enters you in. It's great. And if for some reason you don't want to scribe and share your sticker, or maybe you've already shared your sticker, you can share a review, share an episode, sure. go to the website, pull up the episode that you like and, and post that link to your socials and be like, I love these guys. And this absolutely. Episode. We hey. love it. You will get an entry for, <laughs> you'll get an entry to win a signed copy of Lovecraft country, which uh, having read the book is excellent and worth your time Wonderful. and your reach to try to get a signed copy. Um, the last call to action here is once more the audience, what you're watching, reading, listening to. Um, we have got several of those in so far. We are trying to build a fun database, if you will, of your, um, your renditions, your variations. These are fun. This is a lot of fun. I love <laughs> what has been coming in um, and want you guys to be able to uh, enjoy it as well. Like Bono says, I can't sing, but I got soul. So if you can't sing, don't worry about that. It's not about your your skill as a singer. It's about your soulfulness and your willingness to uh, let us hear it. So um, get your best friend, get your best enemy, get your neighbor, get your, you know, your spouse, your kids, <laughs> uh, the, the neighbors in your cul-de-sac, whoever. Use the voice memo recorder or something equally easy and email it to the fear of God podcast. Where do they email it to? Uh, fear, fear of God, God podcast at gmail.com. Not the, if you're emailing it, it's fear of God podcast at gmail.com. We will use it on the show and we will credit you Reed, Do you want to send our friend out? That's all I got for call to action. Disneyland, Disneyland, Disneyland. It's showtime. Yeah, it is. It's a small yeah, it is. After all. <laughs> all right. Do you know? So, do you know? Do you know? Do I? Do I? You don't. Before everything, we had already, we, by we, I mean my family had, well, by we, I mean my wife and I had already begun. Because when we went to Disney um, back in October for my birthday. Yes. Uh, we didn't take the littlest of our crew. Ah. And because I am selfish and I'm that parent who is like, I don't want to parent my three-year-old at sure. Disney World, who was two at the time. And so we had started hashing this idea and looking at dates to take her for like an extended weekend in November or whatever. And then the world fell apart. And now I don't know what is going to happen, if anything, related to that. Regardless. You could bring, bring her here if you want to. I'll just I could. But that also know. requires a flight, which feels riddled with its own sort of share of, you know, whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Riri, uh, do you have anything left to offer the listeners before we... No, no. Just buckle up. Uh, Matt Ruff is is just a fantastic conversationalist. We talk about a variety of different things. Uh, we talk about, you know, uh, sort of get to know him a little bit. He unpacks his uh, certain aspects of his novel in detail in terms of what the the mind and imagination was behind certain key things. So if you've read the novel, I think you'll find it endlessly fascinating. If you haven't read the novel and want to get a flavor for what it's like, I think it's really great, although beware there are a, a few uh, mild spoilers in our conversation. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, just buckle up, sit back. It's a great, fun conversation, and, uh, and listen to me and Nathan get to know and talk about Lovecraft Country with Matt Ruff. We'll be right back after this commercial break. back everybody we are very excited for the conversation we're going to be having today because we get to talk to author matt ruff matt is the author of numerous novels 
namely set this house in order, which marked a critical turning point for him after it won the James Tiptree Jr. Award, a Washington State Book Award, and a Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association Award. Uh, his fourth novel, Bad Monkeys, also won multiple awards and is currently in development with Margot Robbie attached to star. His most recent release is the futuristic virtual reality geopolitical thriller. That's a mashup of ever there was one. 88 names. But it is his sixth novel, Lovecraft Country, being produced as an HBO series set to debut in August that we are primarily going to be talking to him about today. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and foggers, welcome to the Fear of God podcast, author Matt Ruff. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Good to see you. Of course. Likewise. Hope you're doing well in Seattle or thereabouts and yep seattle um so something we like to do matt every time we have a new guest so it's it's possible and and fingers crossed perhaps you will return to us at some point but something we like to do when someone is a first timer is a little you know sort of game sort of thing we call two questions um we're real creative with our titles around we are it is it's (laughs) it's very (laughs) obtuse yes yes um so Matt, you are, as I just outlined with 88 Names, you're a man of many genres. Um, but here on the show, we skew pretty directly uh, into horror. Um, Lovecraft Country itself has a pretty specific horror flavor to it. And I'm just curious, uh, and this is question one of two questions, is would you say there are horror films or stories that you would point to as favorites or, or maybe ones that got you plugged into the genre? Just, you know, uh, some favorites. My, I mean, my entry, I, I, so I was, I grew up in New York City and I was, I was what they used to call a latchkey kid. My, um, you know, my folks both worked and they worked in different boroughs. My dad was a, a chaplain in Downstate Medical Hospital in Brooklyn and my mother was a translator for Lutheran World Relief in Manhattan. So from a very early age, I was kind of on my own. I, you know, saw myself to school and back and I had a lot of free time at home just so I would watch. Um, a lot of TV and my introduction to horror was the sort of, um, hammer film and other black and white rerun films that they would play on, you know, WPIX independent TV and, um, stuff like I, I have a very fond memories of the, the Abbott and Costello universal monster crossover nice. films that they, they did, um, which were, you know, comedy, but they were also, they still managed to be scary as well. Um, and the, this was also the era of Eric Von Donneken and uh, In Search Of. And so I, I did a lot of reading of nonfiction stuff about, you know, aliens and Bigfoot and poltergeists and ghost hunters and uh, Amityville horror. And that's the kind of stuff that at that age, you know, you, you think it might actually be true. And so it's actually scarier than the, the stuff that you know is fiction. Um, and the, I think the first scary film I ever saw in a theater was Jaws. Um, All right. And that was also one of the first films I, I went to see because I actually wanted to. Like I tagged along with my parents before that, but the kinds of things they like to see, I would often fall asleep. And this one I got really excited and after that started to go see films on my own. And um my parents were conservative Christians. My mother in particular, she did have some strong ideas about things that kids shouldn't see, but her idea of taboos were not necessarily what you would expect. Like I I remember having uh 
big arguments over whether I could go see Oh God, that was a comedy ah! with John Denver and George Burns. <laughs> John Denver and George Burns. It's really PG. But my mother was my mother was convinced this was going to be blasphemous, and so it was. I was weeks trying to get her to let me go see this, and it was only after a coworker told her, "No, no, it's actually quite respectful of religion," that I was able to go see it. Um, mm-hmm. So she had these rules, but she was also very busy and not necessarily always that attentive. And uh, meanwhile, some of my other friends' parents were much more open-minded about, they basically take us to see anything. So I learned that if I, you know, just didn't tell my mother what I was going to see, maybe didn't pick the movie until I was out of the house, I could get my friend Paul Anderson or Tony Mallory's mom to take us to see anything we wanted, (laughs) including stuff that today would be considered very scandalous. Mm. Um, So... One that stands out was uh, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein in 3D, which... Um, oh, wow. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's a it's a horror porn movie. Um, I think it was originally rated X. Um, I must have seen a cut-down version that was R, um, because I, was, I couldn't have been more than 11 or 12 years old when we went to see this. And this is a movie, it's even in the R version, it's, you know, there's graphic, graphic violence in 3D. Uh, oh, wow. Nudity simulated necrophilia and you know it's gracious but it was it was hey, it was a very Reed, when are we going to cover that one <laughs> next I, week I, everybody stay tuned next yeah. next week and matt's back but what was it was a, it was a <laughs> looking back at it this was a very pure experience in some ways because i i was aware that what i was seeing was shocking and i was shocked but i I didn't really have the moral framework or vocabulary to know how I was supposed to feel. So I just sort of felt it. And because, you know, you know, Luther's catechism just doesn't cover this. (laughs) I'm sure it was much more visceral. Yeah. I'm sure it's not just Luther's. (laughs) So the, the way that, you know, that's sort of what that, that left over to me was, was, um, I guess the, the, the lasting impact that had on me was just that to this day, I don't, really ever feel that much moral outrage mm-hmm. at the content of what I watch or what I read. I I have no problem making moral judgments about the characters or what they're doing, mm-hmm. but as far as what the filmmakers or the writers choose to include, the question for me is is always, you know, are they doing something creative or interesting with it? Because mm-hmm. that was the other weird thing about the 70s was that um, it was this weird period in between the fall of the old Hays Code and the, you know, the establishment of new modes of censorship. I mean, there was a rating system, but within that, you could pretty much do whatever the heck you wanted. Mm, And mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, what most people chose to do with this creative freedom was just shock values. Think of something gross that hasn't been filmed before and film it, and that's our movie. And the novelty wears off really quickly. Like the first time you see someone's head explode on screen, Mm. maybe, you know, Scanners or Dawn of the Dead, which I saw when I was 13, 14, you know. (laughs) You're like, oh, my God, that guy's head blew up. But then, you know, the second time it's like, yeah, I've seen that special effect. So (laughs) been there, done that. Yeah. (laughs) What I yeah, what I what I always look for is like if they're going to violate a taboo, I'm less concerned about that. than are they doing it and doing something cool and interesting or at least, you know, that that some thought went into it. Sure. And in terms of the specific kinds of horror I like to watch, um, if I, I think if I list some of my favorite horror films, the, the scenario that keeps coming back to me is the idea of we're taking a small group of people and having them go into some isolated situation um, 
that they know is going to be dangerous or that quickly becomes apparent is very dangerous and where the sensible thing would be to turn right around and leave, yeah. but they either we don't do or it. can't yeah. or, but often they just, they choose not to. And the remainder of the film is a slow unpacking of what a terrible, terrible decision that was. And, um, that, that's like my, my classic horror scenario. And I can, you know, and, and Jaws is a good example of that where it's like, yes, three guys on a little boat in this vast ocean and the shark shows up and Roy Scheider speaking for the audience is like, we need a bigger boat. Exactly. You go back, yeah. get reinforcements. And Quinn is like, nah, We're I'll good. put a few barrels in him. He won't be able to go down. We'll bring him in. We'll be fine. <laughs> and no, that's not how it works out. And, um, yeah, um, Another thing I'm, I'm not really a big fan of shock value. I, I tend to prefer, unless again, unless it's done with cleverness, but it's, it's often just the most lazy option. Um, I like the thing where you can see the monster coming, but it doesn't help. Like, mm. you know, that the only way to run, like Michael Myers is perfect, is the yeah. perfect monster. The best thing about Halloween is that he never runs. He's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. he's across the street. Laurie Strode's already on the, you know, on the front porch, pounding on the door. And he's just taking his time. He's like, yeah, Laurie Strode, you go inside. I'm going to get there and it won't matter. Um, yeah, that's a good That one. kind of thing. Or, or just some reversal where you slowly realize that it's even worse than you expected. That mm. maybe there's one room in the haunted house where you thought the ghost couldn't go or the, the slasher couldn't find you. And, and then at the last minute you realize, no, that's, that's based on you misunderstanding something earlier in the film. Actually, it could come in whenever it wanted. It just didn't choose to yet. Sure. And now you're right, screwed. Right. So, um, so those are the kinds of things I, I love and, and grew out of this. And then within that too, just, yeah, if, if somebody wants to break a taboo or do something especially perverse, but in a way that makes me feel like, you know, it's more than just shock value. They're, they're trying to do something unique and, and, original with it then i i love that too um it's cool you're you're making me think and and i do want to focus on the next question but uh i was gonna pitch in a few minutes to our listeners to check out your the transcription of your lecture from 2010 the an interesting moral education which i read and is, is really lovely but in that there's a note you make where it just says you really can write about anything if you pull it off and i just really loved that and and reed and i I don't, I don't know how much this history you're aware of, but, or I alerted you to before the reading, I've been friends for 20 years. So we've had these conversations about storytelling and, and film and, and all of its various um, expressions for that amount of time. And so we're big fans of that idea. And I mean, heck, you know, you talk about sort of breaking taboos. We are the podcast where people of faith talk about horror material. And <laughs> fortunately we haven't had too many haters out there, but every now and then it happens now. They don't um, last long. Yes, point. it like, doesn't last long. <laughs> um, uh, the second question is, Matt, what scares you? Now, this can be really superficial. Um, I'll let Reed, if he wants to, talk about his. No, 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 no. Um, no there's a, there's okay, a I'm not. <laughs> Move on. Move on. <laughs> or it can be super existential, kind of however you want to interpret that. What scares Matt Ruff? I, I mean, again, I, I think it's that uh, that sense of doing something that you know is dangerous where you know there's you know that that idea that i'm going i'm going into the darkest part of the forest and i know i shouldn't but i'm going to do it anyway and mm-hmm. and i i'm not going to turn back and i'm not going to turn back and i i i don't know if this is a holdover of just you know 
being a kid on my own and growing up in New York and at a time when you really could like, you know, ride the subway when you were 10 and nobody would call the police. Mm. But just sometimes you would wander into a situation or a neighborhood or be on a subway platform and you'd realize, geez, you know, I, you know, I, this is kind of creepy and I'm in a weird situation. What am I going to do? And, yeah. and sometimes the only way to deal with that was just keep going and hope nothing happened. Mm. And I think that kind of stuff that probably has to do with why I, I love that kind of horror scenario of, yeah, we're going to go out and look for the shark on a little boat and, or, you know, we're going to go to this, look for this lost platoon of soldiers at this place. And, and when we figure out that, yeah, they're, they've turned into ghosts and we're going to be ghosts too soon. We're not going to leave. And, or yeah, let's spend you know, let's spend the week at Hill House, <laughs> <laughs> where you can't leave after dark because the gates are locked. And yeah, and and that that kind of thing. I think that the combination of knowing that you're in a dangerous place and knowing that even the places you think are safe probably won't be for long, and watching the slow disintegration of the little society of people you've got as people start to turn yeah. on each other and break and you see mm -hmm. who's going to freak out first that that's the stuff that really gets under my skin and again like startlement yes i'm i'm scared by things leaping out at me but what i'm really scared by is that you know there's no place to run and i can see it coming wow. and mm -hmm. yeah like that movie it follows that mm -hmm. came out recently oh, that's, I, yeah. that's, that's that cool. that's just that's just a perfect scenario it's like yeah you 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 see it coming, you know where it is for a minute. Maybe if you get in a car or jump on a plane, you can put some distance between yourself. But the whole time I would try, be trying to calculate, like, how many hours do I have before I have to start watching? Right. Games? Sure. And, sure. And, and that, I, I guess too, the other, the other big thing, of course, is, is death. Mm. <laughs> the, the idea that, yeah, at, that, it's it's sooner or later, and and it's always getting sooner. I'm going to have to face that and and see what what comes next, if there is anything, and I you know and maybe nothing. And I, I do the math on that too. When somebody famous <laughs> dies, and I'm like, I mean, okay, it follows, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and so died. They were 63. So if that was me, how much time would I have left? And yeah, it's so. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. That's wild. That's wild. Well, thank you for sharing those thoughts on our two questions. So um, we're going to do another little fun exercise that Reed and I usually do solo here. But what we're not going to do is sing with a guest um, <laughs> because we do have a little uh, a little ditty that goes along with this segment um, that we've actually been crowdsourcing our listeners to provide their own renditions of. And so we're going to do that one real quick with one we used a couple weeks ago. Let's what you watching, what you eating, what you listening to. That's so great. <laughs> so, yes, so what you watching, what you reading, what are you listening to? Read, why don't you go first? Do you have an, uh, a thing you've been watching, that you've been reading, or that you have been listening to? So, uh, I did. Listeners will know because the series picks back up with season two on this show next uh, week. But uh, we have been... Uh, I, I did bring my wife into the leftovers and nice. so we are at as of this recording we are midway through season two and uh, she basically is like yep I'm frustrated but I'm hooked <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and uh, and so the other small one that I'll mention because that's what we've been watching you know making our way through the Marvel movies and I've been watching Star Trek too but I am so excited as of this recording the new Bob Dylan album releases tomorrow 
And so I've only been listening to the first couple of tracks, but it's his first album of new material in almost a decade, and I'm super excited because I have the day off tomorrow. So I plan on waking up and getting my breakfast and sitting out on the patio and listening to the new Bob Dylan CD. And that's, that sounds that lovely. is such a delightful. That's like that is like the textbook read lackey. <laughs> activity you just described i mean it, I mean, it, it really, really is. is it really is <laughs> if you're gonna so, have chips should, and salsa too that's gonna finish it i should take another run at the leftovers i started watching that my wife and i got through i think the first four episodes and just kind of fizzled out oh I, I think yeah it's yeah it's, you should give it a timely try. one for our moment uh it is almost too timely at times that that it's it gets a little uncomfortable with some of the crossover sort of thematic obviously not narrative but some of the crossover thematic intersections are are a bit eerie if you will you know so, yeah read okay. to your dylan note um i was listening to one of the kind of pop culture entertainment podcasts i enjoy and he dylan just did some interview was it hollywood Reporter? oh, or, oh my god yes yeah well Douglas that's what Frankly. i was gonna say is they oh. this person they referenced how on their staff the dylan person in other words the you of this mm, staff mm-hmm. cited that as the best interview he's ever done. In his it career. was staggering because really? normally, I mean, I don't want to camp here long, but like normally Dylan has a reputation for like toying with interviews and putting on a persona and yes, not really being, yeah. not really being very sincere. He's always given like one of my favorite little jokes. They, they riffed on it in the film. I'm not there. Uh, but somebody was like, Hey, do you have a word for your fans? And he turned around and went astronaut. And then like got in the, <laughs> and then like got in the car. So, I mean, he was, he always like puts on this little persona, but this is a, an honest to God conversation. He answers without pretense and without facetiousness and, and seems to sort of be speaking from the heart. And yeah, I mean, it, it was mind blowing to have such a lengthy article with him apparently giving no persona whatsoever. It was, it was a great cool. article. Yeah. That's really cool. great article. Maybe this will be the, the, uh, maybe this will be the moment I finally. You know, kind of jump on the bandwagon. I do um, love that album, mm. Matt. What about you, sir? Is there anything specific you want to talk about that you've been watching, reading, and or listening to? Well, my wife and I have been been re binge watching Justified, which okay. is an amazing mm. show. Um, late night, I I watch. My wife is not a horror fan, mm. so I tend yeah. to do my horror watching late at night. Um, in terms of new stuff, I've sort of been slowly discovering Indian cinema as like Netflix huh. as it, it is desperate to maintain a catalog as like other streaming services yank away sure. stuff from them. One of the things they've been doing is a lot of Indian films. Um, there's a, a mini series called sacred games, which if, if you've got mm. Netflix is, is worth checking out. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's really crazy and hard to describe, but just give it, give it an episode and you'll get caught up. It's really good. Um, and it's uh, horror themed. That one is more of a, a it's it's about um, this this gangster who is he dies and he gets killed in the first episode, but he tells this policeman that he's got twenty five days before Bombay is going to be destroyed, mm-hmm. and he's got he's got that much time to figure out. But it's very cryptic, and and the rest of the story is cut between the present day of the cop trying to figure out what this is and how to stop it, and the the backstory of the gangster and how he came to know this and how he came to, to reveal this secret. And it's, but it's just this, uh, Matt Johnson, who, who recommended it to me, just said, this, this is bad crazy. And that's the, really the only <laughs> way cool. to describe yeah, yeah. it. Right. Um, the, 
and a horror thing that I that I saw that that's that's also it's not as good as Sacred Games, but it's called Ghoul. It's a three part miniseries. Uh, I've been meaning to get to that one. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's a it's set in I think an unnamed country that's a Christian majority and and Muslim minority and um. God, I'm forgetting her name, but uh, I think it's it's Radka Opted or something like that. But she's she's an actress. She plays this um, junior intelligence officer who she's Muslim, but she turns in her own father as a subversive. So they decide to trust her, and she's brought basically to this what's essentially a torture center, a black site, mm-hmm. and they are bringing in this notorious criminal, this notorious terrorist, and they've got like one night to break him. And the thing is, he's possessed. Oh, wow. So, so she's like trying, she's, she's a true believer. And she's like, she turned to her dad because she honestly believed it was the right thing to do. And, and I didn't realize that she's, she's like, she believes in the stuff that in this corrupt state. And, um, most of the other people there are just monstrous people, but anyway, yeah. So it's this, it's this torture center and they, they bring in a bigger monster than themselves. And wow. then Ooh. it gets interesting. And, uh, it's just, that was really, that's really good. And in the, in the theme of people going into a scary place that they should know better, there's a, uh, a movie called Ritual. that's also mm-hmm. on Netflix mm-hmm. that is, um, four guys taking a, yeah, you ramble in the mountains and yeah, take a shortcut through the woods that yeah. Yeah, is not a shortcut. Yeah. No, no, no there's a lot of cutting, but yeah, nothing, nothing uh, <laughs> geographically short about that one. Um, awesome. Well, I will just throw as a coda here for us. So I did, um, my, my kids are out of town for the week, which is as relaxing as it is stressful in the current, uh, environment mm. in which we find ourselves. Um, but I've got more time on my hands than I would have otherwise. And so yesterday morning, I read to your, uh, get up and have your coffee and listen to Dylan straight through. I got up and had my coffee and my wife sat at her desk and I went downstairs and watched the five bloods on Netflix, Spike Lee's oh, new film. And I uh, made it to that one yet. Yeah. I yeah, yeah. So at like 9am, I'm like, I'm going to just queue this up and just, you know, it took a little longer cause I had to field a few, uh, you know, miscellaneous, uh, distractions, but, uh, and, and in fact was ready cause it's two and a half two and a half hours was ready for the possibility of kind of pausing it kind of midway and sort of mm-hmm. re resuming later, but, but made it all the way through. It's very compelling. Um, I'm a Spike Lee appreciator. I wouldn't call myself a devotee, but just partly cause I don't have all of his catalog, uh, consumed at this point, but was, was thoroughly engaged by it. Uh, there it's got some tonal shifts that he's relatively known for, um, that really there's a mid mid section where kind of the energy ramps up pretty substantially. I I would highly recommend it. And I did not know this until today. You're going to like this pivot. Um, I read Lovecraft country for our conversation, but I intentionally, uh, avoided, uh, the, I had, I had initially seen the first trailer right when it came out and, but had forgotten much of it. Um, and then today went to the IMDb page to kind of look up what's going on in the cast and stuff. So Jonathan majors who plays oh, yeah, yeah. Atticus in the uh, yeah. HBO Lovecraft is a featured player in defy bloods. And so, and he's great. Mm. Um, I was unfamiliar with his work. And so it was very cool to see him, uh, in both he's an amazing parties. actor and also a really sweet guy I bet. Nice. on the set. Um, that's cool. That's yeah. awesome. Um, well, we're going to get to some of that, but that has been another installment of... What's, <laughs> what you watching, what you eating, what you listening to. That is... <laughs>
amazing. It's so cute. Um, thank you for participating in what you're watching, reading, listening to, Matt. So what we're going to do now is, so we're primarily here to talk about Lovecraft Country. It is true. Um, but you have a more recent uh, work that has come out. And as a brief sort of insight to how you even en- ended up uh, here right now with us, um, longtime friend of the show, Blake Collier, uh, is a peer of yours and, uh, featured you, or, or I don't exactly know the genesis of the podcast version of your most recent work, or at least that unpacked a lot of the themes of it. But, uh, you released a book called 88 names. Um, he had been talking to us about that book for a little while. Um, and so when the time came to kind of have this conversation, I wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to sort of pitch (laughs) and you'll love this the other night. I was trying to tell my wife and I, um, in, in deference here, um, it is through Blake that I came to know your work. And so right now I've only read Lovecraft country. Um, but I've, I know enough about 88 names to kind of have a handle on it, but I was trying to describe it to her and I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know, uh, <laughs> how to, how to distill this. Cause, um, so some of my novels are like, yeah, I can do the elevator pitch in one line and sometimes it gets more complicated. And, and of course the problem is all the books are different. Sure, I, I, yeah. I've kind of been fortunate to be able to do whatever I want and, and basically step in a different genre each time. So, well, if you, so if, yeah. if you don't mind throw in, because I did listen to a little bit of your conversations with Blake and I loved, and if you can at least in brief, because it, 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 sure. it pivots into uh, not just 88 names, but several others. Talk about the apophony, if if you don't mind, um, where you were referencing to him kind of this, this idea of the confluence of ideas. Does that make sense? Is that ringing a bell for you? So yeah, an, an apophony is a is a word for a false epiphany. It's it's something that initially referred to thing experienced by schizophrenics, where they see connections between things that aren't related. Mm. But it's basically any now it's just come to refer to any misfiring of, of, you know, human pattern recognition. It's what creates conspiracy theories where, you know, if, if for some reason you, you, you know, you see the number 23 in the paper and then you happen to notice the number 23 on the clock and you're primed for that, it, you know, you can go through your day and you will notice multiple instances of the number 23. Or, you know, if maybe you see an elephant, a cloud shaped like an elephant and then, you know, you come home and Dumbo maybe is playing on the, you know, is on sure. TV and, and, you know, they're just themes like that. And rationally, you know, this stuff is not connected. It's just coincidence, but because your mind makes these connections, you, you add significance to it. And so that's, that's what an apophony is. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a writer, it's actually a very useful creative tool that, I have apophanies all the time where I, I can take, I, you know, ideas or bits of business that you would think shouldn't fit together and figure out a way to, to build a story out of them. It's like, okay, well, what if I took this, but then I added this to it and then this happened. And to me, it makes perfect sense that these things should fit together. Sure. But, um, so like my second novel, uh, Sewer Gas and Electric, it, it it grew out of partly a desire to do a satire of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, mm-hmm. um, and partly as a reaction to um, the the weird subset of black supporting characters in the movie Die Hard. I just noticed that they had <laughs> there, there's a type of character in films called the the amusing black man. It's like the the minor black sidekick who's there sure. to sort of fill the diversity quota and and you know. <laughs> And he's usually funny, but he's only on for a couple of lines. And what was weird about Die Hard is that they had like five of them. 
with all of these different characters and and it was like they were trying really hard to be to diversify the cast but the problem was all of the good roles were already taken wow yeah so it just to me at least it just sort of underscored the fact that yeah if you want to make a a movie with that's diverse or with a with a substantial black character you've got to start thinking about that before you cast the leads sure. not after right right so that kind of somehow, it's like somehow I, I found a way to put that into this novel with Ayn Rand. And then the whole thing actually started because I, I'd been thinking about what was the weirdest title for a trilogy that you could come up with that might theoretically be a good story. And so I was like <laughs> wandering through the, the fantasy section, looking at the Lord of the Rings books and the Shannara books. And then I just started riffing on trilogy titles, like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, exclamation point, question mark, ampersand yeah. trilogy. <laughs> and the only Sign one that stuck was this one with the three, the, the three utilities. And, and only because that sort of vaguely suggested some idea of a story. And if you're thinking to yourself, how the heck do all these things fit together? Congratulations. This is, this is exactly <laughs> how that's the work. <laughs> I, I'm able to answer that question and that's how I get paid. Um, <laughs> So anyway, 88 Names is actually a bit more straightforward than that. It is a, it is a, um, it's set about 20 years in the future at a point when, you know, virtual reality technology has finally matured to the point where, you know, everybody's got their home VR rig. And the protagonist, John Chu, is what is known as a Sherpa, which is a paid guide to online role-playing games. And basically, you know, if you have a real life, a real job, you don't have 200 hours to devote to building up, you know, your World of Warcraft character. You can pay him a fee and he will provide you with a ready-made high-level character with cool weapons and armor and a, a, a bunch of player teammates who know what they're doing and will basically cater a night's adventure for you. And, um, and because this is a violation of the terms of service of most of these games, one of the things that, that often happens is that, that while they're conducting these, these adventures, they will occasionally get busted by the EULA police, the end user license agreement police within the game world. So, <laughs> Part of the cost of doing business is that the periodically their accounts get banned. So he has multiple accounts and it's just like breakage. You know, it, you run a supermarket, a certain amount of pickles will get, you know, pickle jars are going to get broken. You just factor that in. So one account gets banned. He switches to another. So he's got 88 names and one day he gets a new client who goes by the name of Mr. Jones, who claims to be a famous wealthy person with powerful enemies and is willing to pay a hundred thousand dollars a week for a comprehensive tour of the world of virtual reality gaming. And it's one of those too good to be true kind of deals, but he's willing to pay the first week's installment up front and the money's real. So John Chu takes the job. But as the tour gets underway, he begins to suspect that Mr. Jones is actually Kim Jong-un. Nice. All right. Who's interested in, you know, virtual reality for, for nefarious reasons. And, um, the first two thirds of the novel are set entirely, except for flashbacks, are set entirely in one or another virtual reality environment, either a, an actual game or in a virtual chat room. So all of the characters have total control over how they look and sound. Um, and, you know, machine translation is works to a point where you can pass yourself off as a native speaker of a language you've never studied. And... Almost everyone John Chu is interacting with, not just Mr. Jones, but his co-workers and even his ex-girlfriend, Darla, because cyber sex is also a thing. These are all people he's never met in real life. Right. And, you know, sometimes he'll, he has names. He can look them up, their Facebook page, but Facebook pages can be fake, too. So it's this 
constant guessing game of who am I really dealing with and what do they really want? And, you know, how much does it matter? Like, you know, if my, if my friend is pretending to be a man, but is really a woman or vice versa, do I care as long as I can trust them? And so, yeah, so basically, yeah, he's dealing with, he's dealing with people he, he doesn't necessarily know. And so the novel is, is, is this combination cyber thriller and, you know, an exploration though of, of identity and of also the difficulty of having relationships with people in, in online and when sure. people can lie about themselves. And then it's also sort of the closest thing to a romantic comedy that I'm ever going to write. Probably <laughs> my wife has been telling me for years to, you know, write, you should write a romantic comedy. And this is definitely not what she had in mind, but, <laughs> yeah. but it kind of fits the bill. It's just, a twisted romantic comedy. So um, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's eighty eight names. That's very yeah. exciting. So listeners, uh, once you are done with Lovecraft Country, make eighty eight names your summer reading. I know I am intrigued. Um, speaking of Lovecraft Country, let's uh, pivot that direction. And sure, Matt, you have Blake to thank for this moment where he wanted me to. Make sure you ask Matt about his confusion around Jordan Peele wanting to adapt the story. I have no idea (laughs) what that is a reference to. So I'm just reading it. And if you know what Blake is talking about, feel free to fill us in on what that is referring to as we begin our trek towards Lovecraft Country. Sure. So for those people who don't know, so Lovecraft Country was actually the original idea. I actually pitched this as a potential TV series back in 2007. And the idea was that it was going to be the X-Files if nice. Mulder and Scully were black travel writers living in the 1950s. It was it was going to be about a, a family who own a travel agency, a black family who own a travel agency in Chicago and publish a, a fictional version of the Green Book called The Safe Negro Travel Guide. Mm-hmm. And the the main character is the son of the family, Atticus Turner. His uncle, George Berry, is the guy who owns the travel agency. And Atticus ends up working as a sort of field researcher for this safe Negro travel guide. So his job is to drive around the country looking for um, places that will accept black customers, you know, mm-hmm. take his custom. And at the same time, uh, George and his, uh, Atticus and his uncle George are both huge nerds. So they're big fans of weird tales and, and other genre fiction at a time when genre fiction didn't love them back basically. And so it's Mm. partly about the difficulties of being a black nerd. And so they're having, they find themselves drawn into a series of real life weird tales. And at the same time, they've got to deal with the more mundane horrors of legal segregation and Jim Crow racism. And so it's sort of the question of which is the bigger threat to safety and sanity. You know, is it, is it the thing under the bed, the, the paranormal monster, or is it just, you know, the, white America, basically. Sure, and, sure. And yeah. this is kind of how Lovecraft came into it, because I, I needed a thematic bridge between these two types of horror, and mm. Lovecraft is both cosmic horror and white supremacy. He, mm-hmm. he was very much a, a vocal white supremacist. So, And once I had that title, I, I sort of, as part of the story, was I, I built in the idea that there is this, this cabal of white sorcerers who take an interest in Atticus, because it turns out he's descended on his his mother's side from a slave who used to belong to uh, an ancestor of this Braithwaite family, this rich white clan of sorcerers in New England. And um, it's partly because of their interest in Atticus that all of these other paranormal things start happening to the family. And uh, so in the novel, it's each chapter is sort of a, a 
both a standalone episode, and this is again very X-Files, both a standalone episode and part of a larger arc story, and each each chapter stars a different member of the extended mm-hmm. cast getting a star turn in a, mm-hmm. a different reimagined classic horror novel, so uh, or horror story, so... There's, you know, there's a chapter where Uncle George has to break into a museum and steal what is essentially a copy of the Cryptonomicon. Uh, there's a chapter where Atticus's friend Letitia tries to gets gets a surprise windfall and decides to buy a house in a white neighborhood, and she gets an incredibly good deal because the house is haunted. So now <laughs> she's got white neighbors who want to burn her out, and the, the ghost is white too and doesn't want her there either. And so to keep the house, she's got to play the dead off against the living. Mm. Um, there's a chapter where uh, Letitia's sister Ruby goes home with the wrong guy on New Year's Eve and wakes up a white woman. So mm-hmm. it's sort of Jekyll and Hyde and so on. And and all of this sort of, again, apophony fits together into one larger story about this family trying to keep their safety and sanity and, and get through this together. And um, Well, and what's really fun about that and is and and then i'll i'll pivot to read for some questions for you but um one you're in great company as an (laughs) x-files name dropper here um (laughs) in fact i'm in ned's house yeah yeah the room reed is in isn't actually (laughs) disneyland viewers but uh is his father-in-law's house and his father-in-law is an also an avid x-files fan and that's a long-standing bit on the fear of god but (laughs) what's really fun so again as mentioned i was unfamiliar um with the text of lovecraft country before beginning it and so that first uh, installment with Atticus and the gang going to uh, find Montrose, um, <laughs> I thought was the story. Like, like <laughs> that's the arc of the story until it resolves. And I was like, oh, that, okay. <laughs> and then it reveals itself in this more anthology sort of uh, uh, vein. And I, I just really appreciated that. But it was funny for a moment. I was like, that oh. throws a lot of people at first. Yeah. But I had this problem where I had initially imagined it as this open ended series, sure. TV mm-hmm. series. And I had to figure out, okay, when, when, and 2007, it was just a little too early for that to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to figure out how do I, I want to do this? How do I make it into a novel? And I, I realized what I could do is like, I didn't want to do a collection of short stories, but I also didn't want to jettison the idea of repurposing these old, you know, basically saying what happens if you take these classic tales and imagine them as genre stories that are not hostile to African-American mm-hmm. protagonists. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, eventually what, what came to my rescue was, was binge watching on Netflix and realizing, Oh, what I can do. It's not short stories. It's the, it's the literary equivalent of a, a season of TV, yeah. a limited Episodic. miniseries that yeah. you binge read. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and once I had that, I was like, yeah, I can make this work. But that's why it is the way it is. But that, especially that first break. And, and in the editing, we I, I did some re- rewriting of the, the opening of the second chapter just to make it a little easier to, to make that transition. Sure. But a lot of people are caught by surprise by that. Oh, and I loved it. Ultimately, uh, it was just funny because I was going in expecting Oh, it. yeah. No, you, you think it's going to go on and then you're like, wait a minute. What's this? Wait. <laughs> um, but the, yeah. So, and, and of course, part of part of my goal too with the novel was that it could be a proof of concept that, look, this, this really does work. This is not just going to be like, you know, racist misery of the week it's going to be it's, 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 it's not about it's not about suffering it's about yeah we've got all of these challenges in addition to you know dealing with horrors we've got to deal with just being black in america 
but we've got this guidebook and we've got these, you know, we've got these skills that have been honed from, we know how to do this. And, um, and so it's actually quite hopeful while trying to simultaneously be honest, it's just about how difficult things were. And so as soon as the book came out, I, it had an unusual amount of interest and I, I was hearing from like, you know, Wyatt Sinak sent me email. That's awesome. And I, and I was like, at first I'm like, yeah, Wyatt Sinak, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, but then I realized, oh, wait, maybe that really is Wyatt Sinak. And then, you know, I think one of Spike Lee's cinematographers emailed me too, saying, mm. you know, if you, if you need help getting this pitched in Hollywood, let me know. But it turned out I didn't need help because I was getting, uh, all these people were calling my CA agent. And one of the people who contacted him was Jordan Peele. And this was before Get Out. I think he was working on Get Out, but it had not been released or even teased yet. And so my agent gets this phone call and he calls me. He's like, yeah, this is kind of odd because, you know, this guy, Jordan Peele, he's, he's known mostly for comedy, but apparently he's trying to break into horror. And I was like, fine, I'm happy to talk to him, you know, sure. and... And then I found out Misha Green was going to be on the phone call too. And I got even more excited because she'd done underground, which is basically the great escape on a slave plantation. And I'm like, ah, oh, wow. you know, which one thing she's first, she's just really good. But second, she, she will know how to pitch this so that it won't scare the, the TV people sure. away because she's already done it. And so we got on the phone and we had a great conversation. It was probably the best phone call I've ever had because we were all talking about the same story. They mm. got it. That's awesome. And that, that's often not the case sure. when you talk to Hollywood. Sometimes it's like, did you read the same book I did? Or they'll have mm-hmm. some radical idea like, yeah, what if we what if we rip out everything that's interesting about it and do this? <laughs> and like me, Jordan and Misha were like, nope, this is great. And then a couple of weeks later, the the premiere, uh, the the first trailer for Get Out dropped. And I saw that and just started, that's you awesome. know, I was like, ah, okay, you know. Now I get it. It's like, yeah, it, we're, this is why we're in the same wavelength. He's doing what I'm doing. It's just his, this, it's, he's doing get out in the present day. I'm doing it in 54. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. 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 So, and the other thing that was exciting about that, it was even from the trailer, I could tell that it, get out was going to be amazingly, it was going to do huge numbers. And that meant it would, it would really grease the skids. And little did I know, I mean, it, I knew it would be a successful movie, but it, yeah. after it blew up, it was basically like, why, yes, Jordan Peele, whatever you want to exactly. do next. And I just happened to be the, the golden ticket winner on that. So, yeah, they HBO ordered it. And it, it was like they even skipped the part where they normally they'll do a pilot and then decide. And in this case, they were like, nope, it's Jordan Peele. We'll just do the whole first season. Go ahead. Straight no, to series. Great. So, Is the, so, yeah, I'm still bouncing off the walls about that. That's awesome. So, to your knowledge, wow. Matt, I, I don't know how much you know, but and, and maybe it's an unfair question, but are they doing the entire text or just parts of the story? Do you know? I don't know. I, I, it's, it's one of those things where I can't really talk much sure. of what I yeah, know, yeah. but as sure. I, I was forming I that question, be... I thought that's dumb to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but also I, I honestly, I mean, I, I think, I, I don't think it will be, I think the arc will be at least, you know, it will be recognizable sure. to people who've sure. read the novel, sure. even from the trailers, you can sort of tell that, Particularly the opening, it's it's there's there's details that are different, the you know, um, but um, it's 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 like it's going to. I, I think my what I'm guessing it's going to be my story, but told in a parallel universe where it won't just be the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm actually kind of excited about that sure. that because I I've told my version of it, I've got it, you know, and and now I kind of want to see where Misha's going to take it and, yeah. and what her ideas are and. Um, 
Yeah, and I'm I'm already thinking about if I do want to continue the story myself, do my continue my literary version. It will be interesting to see whether, as the two narratives diverge, whether that can be made to work. Because generally, there is this feeling that you you know, there's got to be enough connective tissue. Like you can't tell the same story twice right. in two different ways. Right. And I've always wondering, well, why can't you? you know, mm. Why mm-hmm. not? Because if the, if the basic source material is rich enough, why can't you do multiple interpretations of it? Mm-hmm. And the main reason you can't most of the time is because copyright doesn't allow it. You've got, you know, you've only got one authorized version and then you've got to wait until everyone's dead for 75 years sure. to do it again. But I've, I've seen, you know, a dozen versions of Macbeth and, you know, some are mm-hmm. good, some are bad, but I'm, I'm happy to see another one if somebody's got a new twist. Yeah. On it. yeah. Know, Scotland yeah. PA, that was great. You know, so yeah, set it in a diner. So <laughs> I, I part of me is interested to see if I can make it work with with this. Um, That's very cool. That's very exciting. Um, so I, I have let's let's dig a little bit deeper into sort of the primary text of of Lovecraft Country. And so what I want to say before we get into this piece is obviously for our listeners, uh, we recommend you read the book. We're going to go ahead and skip to the fact we do we do I think collectively recommend highly recommend that you read Lovecraft Country go check it out I want us to feel the freedom in this conversation to talk about things that would be considered spoilers so this is a big big blanket right now this is your spoiler (laughs) warning Um, so as we proceed uh, Nathan and I have both read the book I'm presuming Matt has read it having written it and so uh, what we're gonna (laughs) so what we're gonna do still got the text committed to memory in large ways so yeah so um, so what we're gonna do is we're as we sort of wade through Lovecraft Country in detail, um, just be aware if you want to experience it blind, which I did and very much recommend that experience, pause this, go check it out, come back to this conversation. If you want to get a flavor for what it is and don't mind some things being spoiled, then carry on with us. So, uh, bef- But as we do that, so I must confess out the gate, I'm not a very big fan of H.P. Lovecraft. I'm I'm a fan of all kinds of horror, I mm-hmm. I recognize his place in the canon. I think it's well deserved in terms of what he's done to cosmic horror, and and some of the adaptations of it have been some really interesting films among my, among some of my favorites. But I'm not a very big fan of his prose. So a lot of times when this connection would be brought up to where I was like, oh, Lovecraft is also a white supremacist, and that's a big deal. I was always like, well, not okay. I could I could kind of take or leave the guy as it were. So so sort of my entry question before my next one is, where do you sort of sit? in the Lovecraft uh, camp in general as as his fiction? Like, was his fiction really important to you? Uh, was it something where you just respected his place in the canon? Where where does that intersection cross over? So Lovecraft is, is one of those people. Philip K. Dick is another example where when I was younger, I actually liked his imitators better than him. Uh, okay. um, yeah. I, I, I found him... Boring for a lot of predictable reasons. I, you know, that the the pacing was just too slow. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I I felt like I, I didn't appreciate the the slow build of dread in him as much as I do now. Where I, you know, because Lovecraft, the the thing is, and, and this is true of most of his best stories, is that the monster either never appears or only shows up on the last page. Right. It's all about that anticipatory dread and. 
that's really an acquired taste. And as a kid, I was just like, nothing's happening. They're wandering around. (laughs) It was me too. They're wandering around these ruins and they're using all these big words that I don't really understand. And, you know, and when is something going to happen? And um, the imitators, I think, you know, the pacing issues were better and they, they captured more of that flavor, but did it quicker and, and mm-hmm. more condensed style. Um, as When I went back to him, you know, as I got older, I'm, I'm more able to appreciate him on his own terms. And the, the pieces that I like, um, I, I think the three I always cite are um, Mountains of Madness, mm. uh, Call of Cthulhu, and, and Shadow over Innsmouth. Um, mm. Those work for me. And Shadow over Innsmouth actually is, is one of the rare exceptions where it does have action sequences. It's It's like... Much of it is this, you know, this guy goes to this seaside town where the, the locals have been you know, entered into this unholy pact with uh, these fish aliens that live in the sea and <laughs> interbreeding. So there's this whole not very veiled subtext of, of fear of, you know, miscegenation and race mixing, though in this case it's a different species. But these, mm. these, these locals are devolving. And so anyway, this guy comes to visit and he, you know, he sees too much and, uh, the bus that's supposed to take him back to Boston or Kingsport, you know, mysteriously breaks down. And he's forced to spend the night. And as soon as it gets dark, the whole turn town turns out to come lynch him. So uh, on the one hand, it's this, it's this very racist story, but it, it's also at the same time, uh, a, a very effective tale of attempted lynching. And it's, it's this guy trying desperately to get out of town before he gets killed. And of course it's Lovecraft. So it's a white protagonist, but uh, yeah, you could, you could tweak it very easily and turn it into a story about, you know, a black motorist stranded in a sundown town. Um, mm. So, and even the way he finally escapes, he, he, you know, they're, they're watching all the roads, but he, he follows the railroad tracks out of town. And, um, you know, we just had the anniversary of the Tulsa massacre where, yeah. uh, yeah, the, the white folk of Tulsa, thousands of them came in and burned down a black neighborhood of Greenwood. And, and there too, one of the few escape routes that, that black people had in that neighborhood was following the railroad tracks out of Tulsa. So mm. it's weird to read Lovecraft and it's like, yep, that's, that's what you do when, when people are, you know, organized to try and murder you. You pick the one road they don't think of. Yeah. Um, so those, those stories definitely work for me now in terms of the the sense of fear. And then again, it's like, I, I totally get people who just, you know, they bounce off the racism hard or you have stories like reanimator, which is Lovecraft's, you know, Frankenstein story. And, and most of it is just kind of good comedic horror, but then he's got this one section where he goes out of his way. They try to reanimate a black man's body and he goes out of his way to, to talk about, you know, how the protagonist thinks that the guy looks like a monkey. And yeah, yeah. It, it's not the, you know, it's the narrator is, is Herbert West's assistant, but the voice is clearly Lovecraft sharing a racist sure. joke that he assumes his reader will appreciate. And I'm sure there are a lot of readers who they get to that and they just want to throw the book across the room or they get really yeah. mad. Mm-hmm. And my reaction is more just embarrassment for, you know, it's like watching somebody crap themselves in public and think they're mm. being clever. And again, I, I always go back to that thing of, okay, yeah, I, I could be mad at you for picking this, but more, I just like, you know, does it, what bugs me is just, it's so boring as a story choice. Yeah. It, it's like yeah. you, you could have done anything and you did this and why? Sure. 
There's a, um, I had a, I had a comparable, I apologize if I'm cutting you off. No, 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 go ahead. I had a comparable situation, um, had an intersection with the novels of Dennis Wheatley, particularly the, um, there was a, a novel called The Devil Rides Out that I had seen. I think Hammer had done a version of it starring Christopher Lee, and I really responded very strongly to the film, so I sought out the novel, and it was following my recognition and had come to awareness of people like Lovecraft who, yes, well-respected name in the horror community. I don't know about respected, but like for his horror tropes. Oh, yeah, he definitely is for a lot of people. Sure. Even now. Um, But then uh, this this underbelly of racism. And so then I'm getting into the Dennis Wheatley novels and suddenly things are (laughs) pinging for me. Language is pinging for me that I think when I was younger, probably because that just was not something I was sensitive to as a child growing up. It sure. it maybe would not have pinged me as deliberately. Um and, and that's part of that's part of the goal is is you try to, you know, open yourself up to some awareness as you as you grow older. And so it's it's interesting to me now things just feel different, you know, like um and and mm-hmm. there are there are certain things and I I I wanna I really, I'm, I'm torn in this moment because I really uh, want to get into some more specifics of the of the text of the book. But I think this is an interesting conversation. If you'd be willing to to follow me here for a second, I'm happy to stay longer. I'm not, I'm not in a rush. Awesome. If awesome. your listeners are, I'm happy to hang. <laughs> oh no, listeners have become accustomed to yeah, mine and they just running long. <laughs> so, so um, I think there's this big conversation right now that it bleeds out of what is being dubbed as cancel culture. I don't want to have a conversation about cancel culture. I, 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 I appreciate, but yeah. No, no. I don't want to have a conversation about that. But there is something that I would be interested in, and that is you come to a place to where what you previously loved now has a bit of a different sheen on it because what sure. you have since learned. And how do you move forward hand-in-hand hand with the affection you probably still carry for what you loved before, but now see it in a, a slightly different light. And particularly, I'm interested in two things. How do you appreciate that and move on if you do as a reader or movie watcher or whatever? And as a, a, a crafter of stories yourself, how do you balance? Because I, I uh, for an inch of context, when you described earlier in the conversation about uh, you had an experience where you just kind of came to accept that, uh, you don't pass moral judgments on content. I grew up in a conservative Christian household wherein there were <laughs> active conversations about sure. the moral content of uh, films and TV shows, et cetera. And so while I sit in a place, obviously, as a co-host on a podcast of Faith and Horror, I sit in a place very similar to what you described of like, I, d- I don't pass moral judgments on the material itself. I more uh, think about it in the context of did this work? Was this creative? Was it inventive? Uh, was it effective? Um, but as a crafter of stories, how do you also engage that sort of potentially, uh, this is a bit of a troublesome area. I'm, I'm, I'm with my group of friends and we're headed into a dangerous place, but we're not, <laughs> we're not uh, turning around. We're just going to tread forward. If that question makes sense, I'd love to hear you talk about no, that. No, it, it does make sense. And I mean, well, first of all, this, this, yeah, I mean, and, and it's not just white kids either. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the, like, I, I, one of the things I reference in the acknowledgments, there's a woman named Pam Knowles who wrote a really amazing essay called Shame, where she talks about growing up as a black nerd and this, you know, yeah, you just don't see, um, the racist elements in, you know, she, there was like her, she would do this thing where she would watch 
movies with her dad and he would make fun of you know the the like oh what's this one called planet of the white people and you know oh, and she would, he would just yeah, razz yeah. her about she loved this science fiction genre that very clearly didn't have a place for her mm. and she just wanted to you know be left alone to enjoy her stories and her dad is like trying to tell her hey you know you're missing this stuff and yeah the the heartbreaking part of the essay is where she talks about going to see star wars the first time and you know which was for nerds of a certain age was like this religious experience. And mm, mm. that was the moment when she finally got what her dad was trying to tell her. Like she's watching this, you know, this amazing movie and realizing there's nobody, there, there's no place for me in this. Yeah. And yeah. So she's simultaneously blown away and heartbroken. And it's like, okay. Yeah. And that, that was something I was trying to capture in Lovecraft country where this has always been a thing. It's like, and it, one of the, one of the things about this, this business with Lovecraft being, you know, is these everybody mentioning what a what a horrible racist he is, is that I feel in a way that that is offering cover to the more general issue that almost everybody, or or at least a, a quite large swath of people in the genre, used racist tropes in a way that would be very noticeable today. So mm-hmm. it was like it, it's not just Lo- Lovecraft was was definitely out of the fringes, particularly if you read his letters. The mm. He was a sincere believer in a lot of wild stuff, but I, I had no shortages of examples when I wanted to include something in Lovecraft Country where I, I took a cherished uh, story and wanted to point out, yeah, there's something in here that a black father worried about what his kid was reading would be able to point to. Like, yes, John Carter of Mars, he fought for the South. He was a, he was a mm, Southern captain mm, and his slaves mm. loved him. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, wow. you know, Robert Louis Stevenson, Jacqueline Hyde. Well, you know, Turns out Mr. Hyde, he's swarthy. He's not black, but he's described in a way that it's clear he's meant to be Eastern European or maybe Jewish, but definitely not, you know, a white cool guy like sure, Dr. Right, Jekyll. So, right, right, right. So, or even the Tom Swift novels, like, you know, the, the, the original versions, they think those have been rewritten several times. They would have incredible stereotypical characters. So it wasn't just Lovecraft. It's just that. Lovecraft became, he really went into the DNA of, of cosmic horror in particular. So that, um, I laugh when people talk about, well, should we stop reading him? Should we expunge him from the canon? As if you could. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. right, right. Yeah. So I think it's for that reason. And, and because people do love him and because it's, it's still very easy to just, you know, turn a blind eye to stuff you don't want to deal with that it, you will have people argue with you about, well, was he really that racist? Would you even really notice? And it's like, I, I use a very obvious example in the novel just because I didn't want to belabor the point because that the scene where, where I first talk about Lovecraft's fiction and Atticus's love of fiction, it's more about, you know, Atticus just trying to enjoy his, his nerdy stuff and his sure. dad giving yeah. him a hard time. So I didn't want to spend 20 minutes talking about like, yeah, if you read Lovecraft, it doesn't take long to figure out where he's coming from on this stuff. But, um, but yeah, you would, you would notice this. And I, I, I think, the best, the best you can do is just, you know, first of all, be honest. Don't, yeah, you know, don't right. deny what's there. But um, at the same time, I, I think the hardest thing is just to get past this idea that someone can simultaneously be racist and still be admirable. Right, know? right. Mm, mm, mm. There is this belief, and I, I think it's it's a belief white people in particular love to think, is that, that racists all have horns. It's like, you know, <laughs> that, that the... You can tell somebody's racist because they use racist language all the time and they, you know, they wear, you know, they wear racist clothes and they do this and that. And so 
the idea that no, somebody can have really, you know, appalling views or just have kind of racist views or blind spots and at the same time be someone really clever and creative and admirable at the same time. It's just like, no, it's got to be one or the other. I can't. Right, right. And this is why, you know, it, it also, if you can't process that, it also makes it very difficult to maintain a relationship with, with people who are racist without becoming corrupted. Because if you are friends with somebody, it's natural to want to make excuses for everything. And it's very difficult to be someone's friend and appreciates what's good about them. But still, you know, if they start talking nonsense, just be honest with them. Like, come on, you know, yeah. you, you know, yeah. that's not true. And, um, yeah, it's it's a very difficult thing, and it's it's a very difficult thing that you seem to do publicly too, because other people will say, "Well, why are you still friends with that person when you know what they're like?" And it's right, like, "Well, I'm right. trying to change their mind, or they're my family. I'm not going to cut them off, but I'm I'm you know I'm still going to try and and say what I need to say, and you know, and sometimes you do cut them off because there's just not enough there there. But to me, right. it, it basically right. comes down to. Am I getting enough out of the, like, if it's a story, am I getting enough out of it that's positive that I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, slogging through this, this, again, I, I'm not mortally offended. It's just more like if, if Lovecraft's fiction were nothing but cheap racist jokes, I would just, I, I, you know, yeah, it's offensive, but it, again, it would just be really tedious. Right. It's like, yeah. I, okay. This is all you got. Fine. Yeah. I, you know, and I've, I've read stuff that's much more horrific, like, like probably the worst book in my in my home library, I've still got it somewhere, is The Turner Diaries, which is, uh, hmm. you know, it was written by, I think, the head of the Aryan Order. And it's, it's basically, imagine a Tom Clancy novel written from the point of view of an avid white supremacist, someone who really hopes wow. that white folks will, you know, first overthrow the U.S. government and then, like, basically conduct white genocide around the globe, and, like, wipe out everybody who's not oh white. God. That's basically the plot wow. of the novel. And... It's supposedly the book that inspired Timothy McVeigh to blow up the, the mm -hmm. federal building in Oklahoma mm -hmm. because there's a there's a scene in the novel very much like that. And I I bought it because I'd heard about it and I, you know, it was this horrible thing. And so I'm like, oh, this is horribly taboo and the FBI wants it banned. I should let me read this and see what it is. And and <laughs> And sure enough, it's like, yeah, you know, once you get past the novelty of reading someone who, who really seems to believe that it would be great if we could just, you know, poison gas everybody who's not white, it's, there's just nothing there. It's, right. it's not interesting. There's no, and I, I had a discussion with um, Paul Lafarge, who wrote a book called The Night Ocean, which is another book inspired by Lovecraft. Mm. Um, and I asked him this question, you know, is there any character who's so loathsome you couldn't see trying to write from their perspective or, huh. you know, you couldn't, you couldn't empathize enough to try and humanize them whilst, you know, obviously still trying to be honest about what they were. And he said, no, there's, there's nobody I, I don't think I could try to do that with, but there are people who are just in their loathsome that there's just not enough self-awareness or, you know, mm. to make mm -hmm. them interesting to write about. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, I, I I think the best fictional example I've seen of this is the movie Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. I, it feels very realistic as a portrait of what a, a, a serial killer might be like. It's supposedly based on Henry Lee Lucas, but mm -hmm. it's just grueling to watch because yeah. there's he's not, a, he's not a full personality. He's just... He kills people and and doesn't really have any real emotional affect or connection with anyone else. Right. And so it's not... 
except in some very clinical sense of feeling like it might it might be a real snapshot of what somebody like that is like. It's just it's just grotesque and yeah, not entertaining and not yeah. It doesn't teach you anything, so you don't get anything out of it. So I watched it once, and I have no mm-hmm. real need to go back to it. And have you? Um, so what's interesting whenever Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer comes up, there was a film that, thanks to the horror streaming service Shutter, recently hit my radar. A film, uh, if I'm saying it in its correct pronunciation, which I'm probably not, <laughs> is um, the film uh, Angst. Uh, it's like Angst is the name of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, if memory serves, it was from like almost a one-time film director. I don't have the information in front of me because I didn't fully prepare to talk about it, but it is uh, made in 88 and it was a, it was a bit of a precursor. I think either a precursor or contemporary to Henry portrait of a serial killer, but far more interesting in the, to me in that in that film, the psychopath narrates the entire film. So you see the, the inner workings of his brain, hmm. or at least he's communicating it as he's going through his sort of monstrous machinations. And in again, in contrast, if you haven't seen that film, I recommend uh, on an evening where you have a bit of a strong stomach. I, <laughs> Henry, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, I kind of saw and I was like, okay, I've seen it. Don't really yeah. feel the need to revisit it. Angst I found very compelling to the degree that as difficult of a viewing experience as it was, it is, uh, I I just love the way you put it earlier, there's a lot of there there. There's some very interesting things to sort of uh, move into, and I feel like, to the point you were just making earlier, I mean, in this crazy world that we're living in right now, there's... I mean, in my, I, I won't get into, for obvious reasons, won't get into a tr- an incredible amount of depth on this, but even in our own uh, family, our own extended family, uh, we've had to wrestle with those same sort of conversations of, okay, there's some people that we, what we really want to do is we really want to have an honest-to-God, human-to-human conversation about this subject and about mm-hmm. why certain statements you make or why certain views you hold could be problematic or could be potentially harmful or could be sort of regressing or reverting the conversation in some ways that you would find appalling if your eyes were only opened to exactly how it is Mm -hmm. appalling and the way it's appalling. But these are also your family members who you love. And I think there's a degree to which we can hold a lot of that intention. And I find that what again, getting a bit back to your book, uh, I find in general, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, that science fiction, fantasy, and horror provide some really effective outlets through which to kind of explore those territories in their extremities, which mm-hmm. allows us to kind of dance with things that in a in a straightforward story might be much more difficult to to stomach and might be much more difficult to even describe and articulate without coming off too uh, grandiose or heavy-handed or, or whatever. Horror can kind of provide some context there. I, I mean, I know what you're saying. I, I feel like fiction generally can do that. I mean, mm. I've, I've seen I've seen it done with, you know, literary fiction as well. Ah, fiction yeah. that's not specifically genre. Like Richard Price is, is somebody who's very good at, you know, writing stories in which people portrays people who are clearly racist but you know they they have like the the kind of racists who are aware they're racist and are kind of self-loathing uh, like they're like cops who know they they don't see black folks as fully human and are kind of disgusted by it but can't mm. get away from it and wrestle with it and ah uh, yeah and and 
I, I find that fascinating, but you, again, you have to be willing to divorce yourself from this idea that it's all one way or the other, that racists have right. horns and that, no, these are, these are people who do have more to them than just the awful thing about them. And that is how, if you have the patience, in some cases, they can be saved. They can be, mm. they can be, mm. you know, turned around and, you know, maybe not totally, but, right. or even if they can't be saved, that they can sometimes surprise you by doing, you know, by showing depths and, and, and showing self-awareness that you didn't, you wouldn't expect them to have or by, by changing over right, time. Right. Um, if I can jump in real quick, I, um, the, but I think what you're describing, Matt, is emblematic of the power, patting you on the back here, of a text like Lovecraft because an and adjacent text, which is making the rounds in uh, a, a grand fashion right now, is the book How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And I, I did start that the other night. And it's interesting because, you know, he talks about, you know, you're either racist or anti-racist, as in there's not like a neutral sort of setting hmm. that you, you're just like, Oh, I'm not racist. Okay. Well, you know, we all, we are all benefiting on a certain level from sure. racist systems and ideologies. Um, however, uh, sharp or pronounced our horns are to, to use your metaphor there. Um, but something that I love about something like Lovecraft is, um, once, once you start reading it as a, as a, as a consumer in our case, you start to recognize, wow, I don't, and, and it was, it was very similar. So it makes sense that these are in conversation with each other with get out. Once you start reading it and you recognize, Oh, I don't know that I've ever either a done the work to seek out much less, but uh, more, even more than that, read something where the point of view character or characters aren't close to and, or just like me. And that's a really powerful sort of mechanism to help reframe us um to to start to and it, it's it's the work of i think kind of crafts folks and artists in general is is you know the the best version of it is is you develop some form of empathy you're able to uh whether it's not assign moral judgment to a character who might be reprehensible and try to say okay well there's something there uh but it's also the ability to say okay this person who is definitively uh in all the ways that kind of matter not like me and so because of engaging their story, I gain a sense of, you know, kind of their uh, place, their, their understanding of their own self in the world. And, and significantly the story in the book of Ruby and Hillary. Yeah. And I remember, and <laughs> there's a running gag on the fear of God of how, like, sometimes I can offer a thing really profound. And then occasionally I'm like, oh, I'm really just dense. Uh reading that chapter i was like how do i feel about this and uh, <laughs> because uh for those of you who haven't read it yet again we're in spoiler territory this character ruby who is african-american woman uh you know um encounters a character who gifts her with this serum that turns her into a white woman whom she dubs hillary and so it's this kind of but it wasn't and this is what i meant by my ignorance it wasn't until the characters explicitly are talking about jekyll and hyde that i was like oh Okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and I i mean, well, the other thing about that, obviously, is that it, yes, obviously, it, it, in some, on some level, it's a, it's a metaphor for passing, but Ruby is specifically a dark-skinned black sure, woman kind of yeah. person for whom passing would never realistically be an option, which makes it all the more tempting that, 
you know, and, and again, it, it, it's a weird inversion of the Jekyll and Hyde story where with, with, you know, Jekyll became Hyde so that he could sin with impunity. Whereas Ruby just, Ruby becomes Hillary just so she can, you know, walk down the street and right, not be right, bothered. Right, and right. She can basically go anywhere and do anything. And But that's also a really uh, powerful sort of technique as, as it's utilized in this book to help those of us who are white and can walk down the street with yeah. zero yeah. sort of, you know, altercation realize, Oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. And, and it, I, I don't know. I just really love how it utilizes that genre overlap to really illustrate something pretty profound. Not that, you know, you're going for metaphor symbolism left and right, but, yeah. but the ability to extract no, but that. I, I won't say no to it. If it shows up, sure. but um, I, I mean, the thing for me is, yeah, I've always liked using, that's the other thing I like about fiction is it does let me write about people who are different from me. And, and I love trying to create psychologically realistic portraits of, of other folks. So that's one of the common threads in my otherwise very different novels is I like doing that. And, you know, and the other thing too is that, yeah, fiction generally allows you to explore thoughts and feelings that would be, you know, uh, including really dark feelings that would be yeah. untenable in any other you know any other medium you just you couldn't do them you know you can you wouldn't want to mess around with them in real right. life but if you want to try and get into the head of you know i don't know even a concentration camp commandant or something like that that's part of what fiction can let you do is sort of you know how would it make sense to want to be that person or what would lead you to those choices mm -hmm. and you know maybe get some insight out of something like that or you know um, yeah. So, um, the, uh, kind of branching off from that, but I don't want to leave the, um, I, I don't want to leave this conversation without pointing out. So I, I went in, as I had mentioned before, into your book pretty blind. I knew before I started it that it was basically, okay, Lovecraft country. I'm assuming there's going to be some H. Cree Lovecraft, uh, elements that are in play. Um, and I had heard just because of some of the recommendations and in conversations with Blake and everything that it was also dealing with, you know, uh, basically racial injustice and, and racialist race, sorry, racist social norms in the 1950s. Um, but then I get about like two pages into your book and you've got me. I mean, you like a hook line sinker because Atticus is sitting there reading like the Martian Chronicles, like you're dropping, you're dropping like <laughs> Ray Bradbury stuff. And so, so I'm a very, very big and, and uh, I'm, I'm going to set you up for something that you either are familiar with and, and maybe it was intentional. And if not, then okay, great. Yay. Happy surprise. Um, but uh, I, so I'm a very, very big Ray Bradbury fan uh, up there with Stephen King. Those are like mm -hmm. my two, my two folks uh, are, are Ray Bradbury and Stephen King and Ray Bradbury. I fortunately, before he passed away, I had the opportunity to meet a couple of times at a few book signings and things. And, um, and at one time through the library, even had the chance to, to kind of spend half a day with him and, and talk with him and oh, pick wow. his brain and stuff. Been great. Oh, it was unreal. It was unreal. But he had, and, and Atticus is reading Martian Chronicles and I knew when he then arrives, uh, and I did not write this name down, so forgive me, but uh, when he arrives at the home of the man who kind of puts him up for the night on his journey, and... I forget, yeah, I'm, I'm blanking on that name too now, but <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I know. It's, but, and then the man gives him a Dark Carnival, like, to, yeah. to read, and I was like, okay, Matt Ruff is either a deep-cut Ray Bradbury fan... Or he has done his homework <laughs> because I was like, Dark Carnival is not the the easy 
go-to of, of something you mentioned. So I'm curious about your Ray Bradbury crossovers. I mean, it was a little of both. I mean, I'm, I am a big Bradbury fan, but I, I tended to favor his novels. Um, yeah, sure. And Martian sure. Chronicles is kind of an in-between. It is another example of an episodic. I mean, it's right, all, right. It's all ultimately one story. Um, and I think I was specifically, I, one of the reasons I picked that one is there is a story in there about Southern blacks going Way up to Mars in the middle because, of the air. Yes. Yeah. Cause they yes. just want to get the hell out. And, and yeah. the white folks trying to stop them from going because they're like, wait yeah. a minute, you can't, you're not allowed to leave us. Right. Wow. Um, so that crossover, and I apologize. I'm just, I'm, no, I'm no, super no, excited. So, um, but that crossover, because I did, I was thinking, so here I am sitting there reading the first chapter of your book and, and I was like, Oh, Ray Bradbury and Martian Chronicles. And then to your point, yeah, Martian Chronicles is, I mean, he wrote Martian Chronicles as a series of short stories that then they were like, oh, you want to write a novel? And he was kind of like, well, I don't feel like writing a novel. Why don't I just put these all together, sort of link them thematically, and then that'll be my novel, which kind of worked. But it has that story in it that was censored in a couple of editions. That that really way, I didn't yeah, know that, but yeah. I'm not surprised. But yeah. yeah, that way in the middle of the air was censored in a couple of editions because it blatantly uses and in proper context because it's about a severely racist white supremacist. But he uses the N word repeatedly, yep. and because Martian Chronicles is frequently read and studied in school, some of the editions remove just that story. Um, and, and just sort of excise it. And I have two editions of that, one that contains the story and one that doesn't contain the story. But what I found so interesting about the connection there is that in that story, he, um, you know, the, this white supremacist is like trying to keep them from going to Mars where they have a hope for a new life and where people won't right. see them as that, that everybody will be sort of on level playing field. And he is actively trying to stop them from doing that. And, and, and one of the characters like kind of, uh, verbally spits in his face and be like, what are you going to do when we're all gone? When we've all moved on from this? What are, what are you, how are you going to spend your time when you can't hunt down people of our color and, and decimate yeah. our lives? Like, how are you going to spend your time? It's a pretty powerful little, uh, pretty powerful little story. But to pivot back into, into Lovecraft Country, uh, the, I'm not going to skip to the end because I think there's a lot of cool things in the middle that I'd like to get into, but I did sort of get this sense towards the end of the of the piece particularly in the epilogue and just the reflections of this family as they're as they're kind of thinking through things and and looking to a better future looking to a better tomorrow and of course my brain firing off the way it is i'm like okay we start with some bradbury and martian chronicles and a new horizon and new tomorrow and then now here with this it feels very much and nathan and i discussed this a bit off pod feels very much like lovecraft country of course talking about this horrific uh, condition that so many people experience going through just modern America, and it's not this you know fictionalized mm -hmm. Artem Lovecraft country place, but this is actually right. you know a present reality with things. But for the potential hope that maybe there's, uh, if you want to say this, like a land beyond this, like maybe through conversations, through you know evolution of human experience or whatever, that there could be this this sort of horizon that we come to where some of these are are left behind. And uh, I, yeah, I just uh, would love to hear some thoughts on on that approach to the story, or if that's I mean, there. I mean, yeah, certainly that was the long term hope. Um, I I. You know, but what I mean, what fascinated me was the the I think one of the triggers that got me thinking about the story was learning about the Green Book and the you mm. know that that there was this whole sort of today largely forgotten infrastructure for navigating the realities of of legalized racism. You know, yeah. it's like yes, the 
the ultimate goal. And if you if you ever look at it, you know, copy of the Green Book, he's got lots of hopeful messages about, you know, the day is coming soon when you won't need this guide anymore and mm. everyone's going to be treated equal. But in the meantime, here are the tools to get through your day. And that sort of combination of optimism about the, the you know, the future, hopefully the near future, but definitely the, you know, the medium future combined with a more practical reality is like for now, you still need to figure out where you can go and where you can't. And, and here's yeah. a, here's, here are some tools to help you do that. That sort of fascinated me that, that sort of, again, because it was a, it was a way, first of all, it was something I had never heard of before and had not really thought about, but that, you know, there were not just guidebooks, but you know, if you were black, you couldn't join most professional organizations. So they right. created this sort of parallel universe of professional organizations. There was a black Freemasons, there was a black Elks, you know, black realtors. Um, and all of that is just a way of, of getting through the next day. And so, yeah, while while still striving for a, a point when, when they could just forget about all this stuff. Yeah, and right. So yeah, what I was what I was definitely trying to end on was this this I you know I couldn't have them live happily ever after because they were going to wake up the next day still in America. So yeah, it was going to yeah. the hopeful note is just that you having spent time with these characters, you know now that they're ready for whatever comes next. They'll they'll mm-hmm. at least have a fighting chance. And because we live in the future, you know that the Civil Rights Act is coming not the next day or the next year, but right, eventually, right. and then. You know, more struggle after that, obviously, but sure. it yeah, does, it does get better. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, and we're in a sense still on that, on that point, but. Right, right. Um, but no, it would have been, yeah, it would have been false to make it, you know, super hopeful and happy, but it was more like, yeah, it, it's going to be tough, but we're tougher and we're smart yeah. and we have each other. Mm-hmm. And that was again, a way to be honest, but not crush the reader sure sure. well that's like and and one of my favorite stories uh so i enjoyed all of them but there were two particularly that just sort of uh you know just lit my imagination ablaze and one of them was actually the the letitia in the home story dreams of the witch house and if Mm -hmm. i now if memory serves me again my knowledge of lovecraft uh, of H.P. Lovecraft's catalog is not as uh, robust as, say, my knowledge of Bradbury's catalog or, or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But if memory serves, there w- wasn't there a story called Dreams of the Witch House, W-I-T-C-H, that mm-hmm. that, yeah. that he wrote? And uh, so one of the things I loved about that, and I'd like you to talk about the genesis of that story in general, but to the point you just made, going to be tough, but we're tougher. I just loved Letitia's character and yeah. and the fact that even here you have Ruby, who's another character that I that that I really found very endearing, but she's like, nope, I'm like, bye, <laughs> like yeah. the you know the 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 haunting start happening, and she's like, peace, I'm out. But Letitia is is very sort of uh, she's tougher than than what's up against, and ultimately, kind of you know in her way, kind of kind of wins over the house, kind of you know right. basically takes ownership of all of that, and I found that really compelling. Um, so I'd like you to just sort of unpack that that story it's genesis a bit and um letitia as a character maybe in general so initially i had actually imagined that that story for an older woman the idea mm-hmm. that it would be maybe atticus's grandmother or uh, his aunt ophelia who is mentioned but never actually appears in the novel sure um, right someone who's maybe whose husband had just died and had some insurance money and wanted to buy her dream house and of course that would mean in chicago um finding a way to buy a property in a white neighborhood mm. and which is, you know, uh, 
was complicated because the Supreme Court had basically, you know, ruled that that these that there were these these covenants that basically said you could not sell or rent to black folks, wow. and those were eventually ruled unenforceable in court. You know that mm. that because it was unconstitutional for the state to discriminate, and in order to enforce them, you needed a state court to to enforce the prohibition. They basically said, yeah, you can you can agree not to sell, you can sign these agreements, but you can't sue if someone violates them. It was a uh. weird way to sort of thread the needle, um, but people could still discriminate voluntarily. So and and they would do that if because if you sold to a black family, you'd better be prepared for all your neighbors to hate you. Uh, um, yeah. So. Um, so often what you would have to do is you would have to hire a, a white person to act as a representative and buy the house for you. Um, mm. and there were cases I read about where people would, they would buy their dream house, but they never actually saw the inside of it until the day they took possession. And then the first thing they wow. did, even before unpacking would be to call the police and let them know, Hey, I'm a, you know, we're, we're a black family. We've just moved into this white neighborhood. We need you to make sure our neighbors don't kill us tonight. Wow. And, wow. and very often, you know, yeah, by the next day, there'd be signs up in every other window in the house saying, you know, undesirables must, you know, at such and such address must leave. We want wow. them out. And so it took real courage to do that. Um, the other problem that you faced was that, uh, if you were black, you generally couldn't get a mortgage because yeah. they, mm. they would not the the uh, what is it the I, I forget which government agency, but they they would not uh, insure mortgages in mixed race or black neighborhoods or neighborhoods wow. that were likely to become black. So you either had to buy the house with cash, which almost nobody could afford, sure. or you would do a, a purchase on contract where it's basically rent to own. It's it's similar to a mortgage in that you pay a big down payment and then have monthly payments. The difference is you have no equity. You don't own uh, the house until it's completely paid off. And if you miss a payment or, you know, something else goes wrong, they don't foreclose. They just evict you and keep all the wow. money you've paid them. So, and basically, so this was, a, this became a scam where realtors would buy up, you know, hundreds of houses and they would sell them on contract at deceptively simple terms. And they would, they would basically rig the game so that you would almost be guaranteed to go into default and wow. they could sell the same house over and over and over again, collecting a new down payment each time. And I think the estimate was something like the scam was taking a million dollars a day out of, uh, you know, at the height of the purchase on contract, a million dollars a day were being siphoned out of the black community by wow. these properties. And, um, and the fact that people knowing that, that the game was rigged, but still choose to buy houses on these terms tells you how desperate they were to just sure. buy a nice big house. And yeah, so, right. so I had this idea of, yeah, of, of initially of having an older woman with money do this. And the problem was, I didn't know what that character was going to do during the rest of the novel. And then I had this other problem too, of, I, I didn't know what Letitia's story was going to be. And, and I, I also there were things I needed her to do in the opening story, like her decision to tag along all the way to Artem rather than stay with her brother. Right. Right. I wasn't sure why she would be so hell bent to do that. Mm. Um, and what I eventually realized is, you know, I came up with this idea that, okay, what if it's Letitia who buys the house, you know, not this older woman. And I'm like, okay, well that could work. And that, that makes it easier to integrate that story into the larger arc of the novel. Sure. Right. 
But then I'm like, okay, but where is she going to get the money? And then, well, I knew her father had been a professional gambler. So I'm like, well, what if she gets a, you know, a surprise bequest supposedly from her late father, like somebody owes him a gambling debt. And of course, we later find out the money is actually coming from somewhere else entirely. Somebody wants <laughs> right. her to have this house. But um, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's cool. And then, you know, and then I realized that, well... Because the, the opening chapter takes place early in the story, maybe the reason she's going to visit her brother early on is because she wants to borrow money for some scheme. Mm. And, you know, her brother is the kind, you know, he's he's dealt with Letitia before and he's not going to lend her any money. And then I thought to myself, well, what if Letitia, I knew Letitia was religious. And I'm like, what if Letitia is the kind of religious person who sees God as like her co-conspirator and facilitator, mm. somebody mm-hmm. who... Something good happens, it's because God wants to do me a favor, and I need something, God will find a way to get it for me. And so, and one thing about that kind of person is that if they, you know, they they often believe that, well, sometimes God wants them to do something for him before he does something for you. And so right. I came up with this Quid idea that Letitia needs money, and so she's going to convince herself that the, the favor God wants from her to get what she needs is to help Atticus with his goal. Even yeah. though there's really no reason for her to tag along to Artem, she's decided, yeah, this is what I'm going to do, and God's going to do me my favor. And just figuring that out right away helped me realize more about what kind of character she was, that she was, like, I'd already figured out she was this kind of an operator. She's the she's a physically small woman with a big personality, and part mm. of that's just the way she's wired, but part of it is because she's the the youngest kid in a family of three that they don't have a lot. And she would have learned early on that to get her fair share, she was going to have to speak up early and often. And so, sure, you know, if she'll sweet talk, if she can, she'll try to intimidate you. If she can, if she can't do that, she's going to go around you. So, <laughs> and that plus the idea of like, Oh, she, she'll get this idea in her head that she's, she's coming along on this trip and God has a plan. And, and part of that plan is she's going to help Atticus with his thing. And then, God's right. going to help her with the next step of her life. And lo and behold, she gets Here back to Chicago. Money. <laughs> money comes out of nowhere. And then she's like, yeah, so I'm going to buy my dream house and I'm going to go for something. And even after it becomes clear that, yeah, this is this is way too good to be true. And the house is haunted and the neighbors are going to hate her and it's going to go through hell. But and it's like, it's not just solipsism. It's like, it's it's actually a survival strategy. If you're right, a black right. woman alone facing this, it's like, even though you're going to lose everything if you leave, because you're buying on contract, you're locked in, you, you sure. don't get your money back. Still, it's like, at least get out alive. But if you can convince yourself that God wants me to have this, this God gave me this chance, then you're not alone. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that'll give you the moral courage to do what you need to do to make it work. And right. that's how she pulls it off. And um, Ruby's not a part of this. Right. <laughs> right. Useful self-delusion. So Ruby's like, fine, you and God can stay in the house. I'm going back home. <laughs> She's like, bye. <laughs> I'll, I'll come visit, you know, if if the place is not a burning heap of coal in, in a month. You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, no, that's great. I, I, I really did. Uh, I mean, like I said, I enjoyed every story for its own unique adventure, but I, that that one really stood out to me. Nathan, I've, I've talked a lot and, and probed a lot. Do you have any sort of partic- – I have like a couple more. I know we don't want to go on forever, but I want to give you an opportunity if you have anything specific you want to highlight or – or sort of unpack or prompt a little bit. Um, yeah, I think for me, as far as the the stories within the book, 
two that really jumped out at me, uh, and we can spend as much or as little time on them as we want. But one is uh, Hippolyta and Ida on mm-hmm. the pl- off mm-hmm. off planet, right? Yeah. And there was just something so wild about that. Again, if you think as a reader unfamiliar with the text before going into it, you're still trying to acclimate to what is what structurally is happening. Um, and also, I just loved. Uh, is it Scylla? You know the the yeah, monster, the, the, the monster on the beach. Um, Scylla, and, yeah. There, there was something, and and Reed, I think this will echo for you, and and Matt. I don't know if you've read uh, King's Dark Tower series, but there was something very lobstrosity about that sequence. Mm. I, I I probably had. I mean, yeah, I've I've read that story, and I'm sure I, I had it somewhere in the back of my mind as I was physically setting up the space. Yeah. The fact that, yeah. There's mm-hmm. a doorway on the beach yes. and yeah. there's a cliff Drawing overhead. Drawing of the three and, type of visuals. Yeah, yeah I really right, loved that. Right. And and also it really, strangely, and again, these, um, I don't know if we would technically call this apophony, but these things that are now connecting in my brain, but the it had an echo of um, Dr. Manhattan on Mars uh, from Watchmen that really, I don't know. It's interesting. Um I mean, for me, the the other the other thing, obviously, there's there's a bit of a nod to Alien, and that one of the mm. like the baby cellar she ends up taking back with her turns into a face hugger. Yeah. And kills <laughs> a guy. Um, but um, yeah, that was Ippolita is like the first character who you have not actually met before yeah, I tell yeah. her story, and so I needed to grab you right away. And, and, and in some ways, she's sort of a way of capturing my my own mother's, you know. I, I did not have a black mother, but my, my mom was someone who she grew up in South America, uh, mostly you know, she was born in Brazil, grew up in Argentina at a time when women were not encouraged to seek higher education. Like it was the mm. Peron era. Mm. And so she was an incredibly intelligent woman, spoke four languages fluently and could get along in a half dozen others. But um, because she didn't have a college degree, I think there's a part of her always felt that at least other people would see her as stupid. Mm-hmm. And, and mm. she never really found her niche in life. You know, she, she would talk about that, that one of the reasons she was so supportive of my career was just this feeling that, you know, I knew what I wanted to do and I had my dream and she was going to support that. And, um, Hippolyta's tendency to go for long drives is something my mother did mm. a lot too. Wow. Um, yeah. She's ex- absolutely the kind of person who, would drive out to the middle of the woods if she thought there was something interesting there in the middle of the night. So, yeah, I'd had this idea that that I would have Hippolyta find out about this this weird observatory that turned out to be more than an observatory. It was actually a way to go sure. to other planets and that she mm. would be drawn to it. And I had to very quickly because I, you know, I only had about 10,000 words to play with. Um introduce her and give enough of her backstory so that you would understand why it was so important to her and why even after she realized what she had found, she would not run away, but would take that step through the door mm-hmm. and, mm. and risk, you know, whatever was there. Uh, and yeah, I really loved her character and, and I don't remember now how I, like her whole thing is like, she's, she comes of age in the 1930s and this is when Pluto was discovered mm-hmm. and, or all these kids wrote in to the Lowell Observatory with suggestions of what it should be named. And there's this whole thing where she comes up with the idea of calling it Pluto and yeah. writes in her suggestion. And of course, what actually happened is um, 
this British girl who, who had a family connection to another astronomer, she came up with Pluto as well. And so she kind of got to jump the line. Sure. Mm-hmm. They gave her credit for it. But it's like, it's not like her letter got there first. Right. Just, she had a family connection, which Hippolyta as a little black kid in Harlem could, you know, right. she's got nobody to call. So so she's heartbroken that they picked they pick the name she wanted, but it's credited to somebody else. And she realizes, oh, I never had a chance. Right. And yeah. so she becomes obsessed with the idea of finding a planet and getting to name it herself. And that's part of what drives her as an adult to, oh, I, I found, found a planet. Magic portal. Right. Yeah, I get <laughs> that's to go. awesome. Well, I really love her. And yeah. especially as the sto- as the book develops and her relationship to Horace. But the, another one, and it, um, you know, none of them are quote unquote lesser, but it feels a bit more adjacent ultimately. But a story that I found real just fascinating was uh, Atticus and Montrose and the Henry Narrow uh, yeah, sort of subplot. And, and one thing I just really loved about it is in the moment – it feels at least it did to me like a swerve, you know, you're, you're totally anticipating them finding this guy. And, and while on a certain level they do by no means, is it in the manner in which you would have expected? Um, but I also just loved kind of the sense of this, a temporal, whatever that, that, that Henry and, and I can't remember the wife's name, but that, that he and his wife and the child Pearl, is that right? Yes. Pearl, yeah. Uh, Pearl and the child live in. And I just, I don't know, I really loved that sort of side plot and and wonder if you have any sort of lingering thoughts you want to share on it. So with that, the, the, the thing was, I, having mentioned that these folks were from Tulsa, I wanted somehow to incorporate the Tulsa Massacre into the novel. Mm. And yeah. Um, and I didn't have a story for Montrose. And part of another thing I really wanted to do at some point was explain why Montrose became the person he is, the father he is. Like Montrose, the key to Montrose is he's the kind of dad who doesn't want to be, he doesn't care whether his kid likes him. He doesn't want to be your friend. He's your dad. Mm -hmm. And his job is to keep you safe as much as possible and give you the tools so that after he's gone, you you won't get yourself killed stupidly. And Mm. Atticus is the kind of kid who doesn't listen and, you know, is constantly doing, like he joins the army and goes mm-hmm. and fights a war for white people, which is the stupidest thing that you know Montrose could think to do. And Montrose is just furious that his kid is just not listening to him. And and I wanted to sort of explain how he came to be who he was. And so, and this is another one of the sort of Matt Ruff non sequiturs where it's like, yeah, so what does it have to do with the dead guy? And I had this idea that they would go in search of these these notebooks that Caleb Braithwaite wanted that were stolen by this, this son of this other sorcerer and, you know, last known location was somewhere in Southern Illinois. And so they go there looking for him. And what it turns out is that, that the guy and his, his, he, he ran off with the black maid and they had a kid together and moved into this neighborhood. And he was, this kid was completely naive. This white guy was completely naive about the peril he was in. The whole family ended up getting murdered by essentially by the local clan. And so Atticus gets there, they get there and Montrose gets there ahead. And he basically they're, they're, they're dead, but they're trapped in this sort of, they're trapped in this afternoon and evening of the day that they were murdered. Yeah, it was wild. So, uh, Montrose yeah. gets there and sort of it's, you know, it's winter, but then he falls down this hill and he's sort of trapped between on this border between winter and this endless summer day. And 
decides to go in the house and, you know, and he's, he's doing this because he wants to get Braithwaite out of her life to protect his son. Right. That's right, the only right, reason right. he would do this. And, um, ends up sitting down. And, and the thing is that, you know, to narrow who's dead, it's like the dead don't, they've lost pretty much the ability to feel anything. There's no right. taste in the mm. food. And so, what Nero basically says is, I will give you what you want, but you've got to make me feel something. Mm-hmm. And, and he wants, what he turns out to want is he wants the story of the day that Montrose's father was murdered, the night yeah. that Montrose's father was murdered. And that prompts Montrose to basically go back in time and tell the story of the, the jumping off of the Tulsa massacre mm-hmm. and, and how his father was shot carrying him to safety yeah um yeah yeah and yeah so it is definitely it's it's a weird it's a ghost story but really it's just a it's a story about yeah this is you know the dead want you to share their pain so they can be alive again for a moment and Mm. and about different fathers and sons and their relationships and and by the time it's done you sort of get what what moves mantras and and why he doesn't care if atticus is his friend if if only Atticus will just, you know, start saying some sense and stop just right. running off to the graveyard every other, you know. Well, it's it's um, funny because, like I mentioned earlier today, when I went to actually do a little self-educating on the the series, read. I don't know if you saw this, but Michael K. Williams plays Montrose, and I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, that's, oh, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. perfect casting. That was a case of the dream coming true. Sure. He's like, yeah, he would have been on my short list, but I'm like, yeah, Michael K. Williams, they're never going to get him. <laughs> so but wow. Turns out when you're on HBO and they, yeah, he's part of the family. <laughs> so it's no longer as insane an idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's awesome. Well, um, we're going to be uh, sort of narrowing down and winding home here in just a few moments, but I have, I have one more thing I want to talk about sure. sort of through the, through the context of, uh, Another story that really stood out to me, and that's Jekyll in, in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. Um, the the story, of course, where Ruby wakes up and uh, discovers that she's a white woman, and it's because she what I, so a couple of just sort of logistic notes, and and yes, there's an HBO series coming coming out. I don't know exactly how they're going to handle these twists, but like I loved the I fact, don't either. <laughs> right? Because like I loved the fact that. Two big things in that story. So first of all, obviously that the white man she's talking to that she kind of, you know, gets affectionate with. And then when he introduces himself and it's Caleb, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like I didn't, you know, because you just don't automatically know that. But then that she becomes Hillary and she spends so much of this time as Hillary. And then you later find out like, oh, crap, that's Dell. <laughs> like she's been she's yeah. been basically embodying Dell. And I loved that that reveal so much. Um well- yeah, There's a ahead. thing I like to do in novels is to take a character you expect to be either take a character you expect to be the protagonist and kill them off in the opening or take a character mm. you expect to be a minor character and make them one of the most important people in the story. And, yeah. And that's actually kind of a double embodiment of that because Dell too, you don't expect to see her again. And then it turns out, right. oh no, she's got a big role here. And wow, yeah. Uh, and Ruby, likewise, at first she's just, you know, oh, she's just Letitia's sister who doesn't want to stay in the house. And later you find out, well, no, like part of part of what that the, the, the point of this is I, I had made an early decision that I was going to tell everything from the point of view of, of the black characters. I was not going to mm-hmm. get in any white person's head because I, I wanted to stick with the people for whom. You know, the horrors of racism really were a horror. I didn't right, want to do right. the, you know, I didn't want to have the white friend or even the, you know, the white sympathetic villain and, you know, get in his head. 
So I needed a way to show what the villain's master plan was when they, you know, what were they doing when they were talking and thought they could speak freely? And eventually I realized, well, what if I take Ruby, who's kind of on the periphery of these other characters, and I give her this opportunity to be white and make her... Yeah, so great. basically, yeah, to, to basically have Braithwaite basically hired her to be his sort of spy where she, yeah, could, she right. could be either, either you know, the black woman who will no one will pay attention to or this, you know, pretty good looking redhead who they will underestimate. And, right. and mm. so she can do what he needs done when he can't be there himself. Mm-hmm. And what does that do to her? And, you know, and what right. is she, you know, right. and again, this is like, she's not somebody who can just pass. So. He's offering her this ticket to to do something to to just be pick your dream job and actually have a chance of getting it. And of course, she's right. going to discover that you know white women have limitations of what they can do too. <laughs> sure, but at least sure. at least the horizons are somewhat broader. Um, right, right. And all she's got to do is learn to live with the fact that yeah, there's this this other real woman in the basement in this glass coffin wild. in a coma. Who's trapped there? And yeah, she only and and this creepy thing that Braithwaite says is that yeah, well, you know, she she dreams, you know, she dreams whatever you're doing. So the only life she has left is you. And of course, part of what's going on is at least a little bit. Braithwaite and Ruby are kind of having an affair, and so it's kind of mm. if if you take time to think about that. So you're saying that yeah, when I have sex with you, she's dreaming about that. And wow, that's crazy. Do I want to live with that? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe she enjoys the part where I'm out walking in the sunshine and the birds are tweeting, but, you know, what about the other stuff I'm doing or it's stuff yeah. that she just doesn't want? And, yeah, so. Yeah. Well, her trans- her transformation world. on the elevator, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, it was it was, it was was a real <laughs> yeah. hard turn. Like, whoa. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, yeah, is like her clothes do not magically transform with sure. her. So in Ruby's, Ruby's a big gal, so her, you know, mm-hmm. Dell's shoes don't fit her. Dell's, you know, yeah. Dell's bra isn't big enough, and so yeah. So going forward, she's probably going to either have to time the end of the potion much better, or get clothes that are elastic, can accommodate like Hulk's, <laughs> right. Hulk's yeah. purple pants. You know, and yeah, get exactly. some unstable molecules. Yeah. And I, I love the final the final line of that one, which of course has resonance in in a number of different ways. But you know, and and it ends basically with Braithwaite asking her like, "Who, who do you want to be? Like, yeah. what you know, what's what's your decision?" And so, um, as as sort of a final coda, and then I'll have a final question for you, and then we'll we'll wrap this up. Um, as a final coda, like one of the things we we've we've gone to a number of different places, listeners. Uh, if you uh, for some reason, are still on the fence about whether or not to check out Lovecraft Country. For good God's sake! Like, check out the book. You're gonna have a great, yeah, a great time. It's it's fascinating. It very much is sort of a bingeable reading experience, and um, you know, episodic in nature. So there's a lot of variety in the stories, but a lot of uh, thematic sort of threads that tie everything together. But one of the, the one of my favorite lines from this and maybe this will be a nice place to sort of tie everything together is one of the things that um, uh, he's told I think George Barry says it I didn't write down who says it but I believe it's George Barry says to Atticus that you know, p- that stories are like people that loving them doesn't make them perfect and God I love mm-hmm. that line um, that that we've talked that a lot. That seems to be a favorite for readers to quote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and so let, let me jump. Let me jump right in with everybody <laughs> else because I was like, because I was like, I, I feel like there's so much uh, truth and resonance in just that that idea. Like you know, loving loving it doesn't make it perfect, and it doesn't have to be perfect to love it. And there's all kinds of complexities to you know the ramifications of that idea. Um, but 
I think what I so appreciated about uh, the the characters in this book and each of its different stories is the way it balanced out. Like these these are not monolithic in their intentions. They're not monolithic in their uh, right. you know their, their their frailties or their their quandaries. Uh, the the feel very real as people. So uh, kudos and congratulations to you. your imaginative capacity because they they definitely feel very complex as entities within the story. Um, and so I've got a kind of a two part question that will, that, that you can speak to and then we'll say goodbye. Um, so first of all, and this is the biggest part, I always like when, when creatives get on our show, uh, to give them an opportunity. If there's something that in the variety of interviews you've done that you don't frequently get to talk about, but you always want to talk about, or you like Mm. mentioning or highlighting, if there's something that you'd like to take a a moment or two to just say, you know what, nobody asks me about this and I love talking about this or or I I find this interesting. Uh, I want to give you a beat to be able to discuss that. And then uh, just uh, in the end, uh, I kind of just want uh, your overall summation of of what you want, uh, what your ideal would be for readers engaging this. Uh, You know, is it... uh, Obviously, you want them to be entertained. Obviously, you want it to be thought provoking. But is there anything particular that you want them to sort of, uh, sort of walk away with in in terms of your intentions and hopes for their experience of it? Well, so to take the second part first, I mean, I I'm generally not a message guy. I yeah. I I I think that again, yeah, the most important thing is to tell an engaging story, and I I find that I do better. I I tell better stories when I don't try to to underscore, you know, some specific mm-hmm. message. I trust the reader to figure it out for themselves and just let, you know, the message and the resonances develop organically in the storytelling. And, sure. And the other thing too, when you're when you're talking about race in particular, it's like even the most matter of fact dry recitation of, you know, racist history will be heard by some readers as an accusation. And so mm-hmm. if you, yeah. if you push that any harder, it's like, you're already going to have a hard time, you know, with people just saying, Hey, 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 I had nothing to do with this. Why are you, why are you bringing up all this stuff? And, you know, why can't we just, you know, be friends and enjoy history? And it's like, guy, I'm just, I'm just telling you what happened in Tulsa. I'm not saying you set the neighborhood on fire yourself, you know, and, right. um, so I just I, I find it's better to just yeah I, I obviously I because I am I'm my own first reader I'm I'm seeing possible themes and, and messages as I'm going and some of that feeds back into the writing but I, I try not to dictate what people take away from it I, sure, I really like to leave sense. that up to them and I, I don't know in terms of I, I I don't know that there's there's a specific thing I've really wanted to be asked about it but I guess one thing just bouncing off what you just said about the difference between the characters. And this is something worth highlighting that um, one of the advantages of writing an ensemble cast like this, Mm. like like very often the way diversity is done, I think is that you'll have like one representative character from each, you know, group, like you'll, you know, you Uh. have the black character and the, and the problem with that is that they become, you know, whether you want them or not, they, they often tend to become monolithic embodiments of, you know, the group. And so it, it unless you're very good at, at not thinking too much about critical reaction, there's a temptation to like, if you've got like the one Muslim character to make sure that they're not too bad or not too good, you know, that you're, you're sort of not insulting anybody. And right. if you have 
you know, if everybody in the, in the, in the story is black or Muslim or, or whatever, then they have room to breathe and be individuals and they don't have to carry the moral weight for the representation of their whole mm. class. And, you know, they end up being more like just ordinary real individuals, which I think right. is to the extent that Lovecraft Country works, that's the thing. I wasn't, you know, approaching any of the characters as the, a, a black character, a generic representative of the black experience. It's like, no, you've got, you know, you've got Atticus, you've got his father, you've got his uncle who, you know, they're, they're half brothers, but they're very, very different. And, yeah, and you know, sure. you got Ruby and Letitia again, very different. And so, and even specific situations in the novel, like, you know, you, you, if you plugged somebody else in and, and had them face the same thing, the way they dealt with it would likely be very different. And sure. so that's how I'm able to not worry about like, yes, Ruby's reaction, you know, like she doesn't, you know, she doesn't immediately say, well, of course, I'm not going to exploit this woman, you know, who's mm, in the glass mm. coffin. It's like, no, well, I know this is wicked. I know, I know what I should do, but, you know, I really like being a white person and the freedom <laughs> that gives me. And, and, you know, that's the thing is like, it, you can be honest about the temptations and the struggles that people face and have them be human without fearing that that's somehow racist, that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's this weird trap. And I think this is where white authors in particular uh, can have trouble. If you're just having the one white, you know, the one black character is like, oh, you know, don't want to, you know, don't want to give them some nasty right. trait that will be interpreted as me slandering, you know, black mm-hmm. folks. It's mm-hmm. like, nope. And once you've done that, it's like once you're comfortable with that, then, you know, yeah, you can you can write a you could you could write an, a solitary character and not worry about it. But I think particularly for folks who have not done this before, um, just having a, a group of folks where you can see them as a community, as individuals and not not worry about what it says about you. That right. you know, a particular character right. does something stupid or vicious that can that can really lead to a better story overall. So I guess that would be a, you know a little something to carry away if you're thinking about this yourself and you're a writer and you're wondering how to approach it and we're worried mm-hmm. that you'll you'll screw it up. Um, yeah. So well, awesome. Well, uh, Matt, I, we can't thank you enough for taking so much time out of your evening to well, spend some time pleasure. with us. Thank you very much. Yeah. Oh gosh, hey, yeah. What's we that, hope what's you that shirt you got on there, Matt? What's that? Uh... Oh yes, let me. Whoa, oh, Matt oh. Ruff. <laughs> <laughs> We never met a shameless plug we didn't love. <laughs> like, no, no. I, it's, I, it's, absolutely. It's true. Um, but uh, we hope you felt welcomed and felt at home here. We'd love to have I you back. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank um, you. So we're, yes, and I'm yeah. happy to come back. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. So listeners, um, not only check out the book Lovecraft Country, but tune in next week to find out who won right. the drawing uh, because our wonderful new friend of the show, Matt Ruff, uh, has been graciously willing to autograph a copy of the book for you. So uh, don't forget about that, and we will be announcing who the winner of that is next week. Um, Matt, I just thank you so much again for being here. Where can they find you and all the stuff that, that's going on in your world, if they're interested? So the, the website is www.bymattruff.com. That's B-Y, like a byline. And the reason I have that one is because I did not listen to my mother <laughs> in law when she told me to grab <laughs> mattruff.com because I said who else could possibly have that name and um, 
Turns out a lot of people, including, I, I think he's a Christian broadcaster down in Tennessee who got That's there hilarious. before me a couple months. So, so <laughs> wow. I, I am by mattruff.com, the, the okay. byline. So. Awesome. By mattruff.com. And, uh, and yes, listeners, uh, tune in next week. We are going to be starting season two of The Leftovers. We are going to be starting our next phase uh, of that whole wonderful, mysterious journey where we do everything we can to let the mystery be. And uh, as always uh, on this show, uh, we encourage you, uh, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. In that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. We'll see you next time, everybody. everybody. Thanks. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest news and episodes or for merchandise and to contact us directly. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God, on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork. To Lee Wright, who helped me, Reed Lackey, write our theme music. And to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.